You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who is Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We are in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together and remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. Keanu Reeves, Alex Winter, Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God. Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's... Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. Party on, dude. Hi, I'm Chris Stashew. And I'm Josh Stewart. And I'm Mike White, and this is a special crossover episode of The Projection Booth and The Culture Cast. And we are talking about the Bill and Ted trilogy. It's the story of two dudes from San Dimas, California, who become godlike figures in the distant future. In order to keep them on the right path, they are given a guardian, Rufus, who helps them travel time in order to complete a history report and stay on the path to writing a song that will unite the world in peace and harmony. We will be spoiling all three of these films as we go along, so if you haven't seen them, please stop the podcast and come back after you have. So Chris, when was the first time you saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and what did you think? I distinctly remember... Getting Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and this is going to be something that might be like a, oh, holy shit, I don't remember that, or holy shit, this was a thing moment. Do you guys remember in the mid-2000s, so when I, was in, when I was in high school, like 2005 to 2007, right when Netflix was becoming a thing, there was this service where you could swap DVDs with other people with actual people. You would say, well, I have this, this, and this. Someone else has these things. I will trade 
you for that thing that you have. I forget what it was called, but I distinctly remember getting Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey from this service. And I remember watching it when I was either 15 or 16, and it made a very distinct impression on me. The entire series has, but the first one, well, I wouldn't say more so than all of them, but the first one made a massive impression on me because while I wasn't as uh, as good-looking as either of these two guys are in high school or with the massive amounts of misplaced self-confidence, I resonated with the characters of Bill and Ted. It's one of those movies that I've just gravitated towards, and it's probably my favorite buddy comedy movie of the 80s. I refuse and frankly find it a little strange that people consider this a stoner movie because the characters are not stoners. This is my favorite 80s buddy comedy without a question. And Josh, how about you? I honestly don't remember a time in my life without Bill and Ted. Like, that's not hyperbole. I remember some of my earliest childhood memories. Uh, Like, I was all in. I was watching the cartoon. I remember eating the cereal. Let's visit the land of heavy metal with our most excellent cereal. Pass the gruel. Looks like a gruel duel, dude. Heinous display of manners. We've got a most excellent way to start your day. Or night. Bill and Ted's excellent cereal. Cinnamon oats with marshmallow notes. It's the most triumphant part of this complete breakfast. Awesome cereal duels. Who gets the last bowl? He does. New Bill and Ted's There's not a specific time where I don't remember Bill and Ted being in my life in some form. I was born in 88, so I was right there for it as it happened. That was the early series I really latched onto as a kid because it was never, you know, it was never too crass for my mom to, to really worry about, even at a young age. You know, they're very good hearted. They do the mostly the right things. The way everyone obsessed over like Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones and stuff, that was me with Bill and Ted first. What about you, Mike? Well, let me put down my cane. Okay, old man, where do you come in? <laughs> I saw Bill and Ted at the theater. I specifically remember going to see it uh, at the movies at Fairlane. And I remember the story when it came out that they almost didn't release this movie, that it was sitting on a shelf for a while. And I tried to dig into that a little bit with some of the interviews that you'll hear later. But they did a good job because I think at one point they even say – 1989 or 1988 in the movie, so it doesn't feel like it's out of date. I don't know if that was ADR or what it was, but it felt very contemporary to 1989. It didn't feel like, you know, we were even talking last night, Chris, about Wonder Woman 1984 and how it felt like that movie should have come out in 2019, and by 2020 it felt a little late. This movie is very timeless, and you guys seeing it when you saw it, you know, Chris, you seeing it in the mid 2000s and it feeling fresh for you. This obviously felt very fresh for me seeing it right out of the gate, but it still has this kind of timeless quality to it that I really appreciate. It doesn't feel like it revels in its 80s-ness. It is just a thing that is there. And I loved this movie when it came out. I was really excited a few years later when the sequel was coming out and yeah, I was, what, 18, 17, 18, so about the same age that you were when you saw it the first time, and yeah, it just really hit the right tone, and I, yeah, these characters are so pure and just so all about themselves that I love these guys, and they always 
feel so right to me when I watch them and rewatching the movies for the podcast, going back to this first film, it just feels as good today as it did back then. And I think a lot of that goes to the fact that if you know anything about these movies, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves are, are good friends still, t- still to this day. And I don't know about y'all, but I chalk up a lot of the success of these movies, especially the newest one, and we'll get to it when we get to it. It, it being the style of film, a, a buddy comedy, regardless of the genre it's being put into, these movies live and die by the chemistry between the leads. And not one moment passes in this film where I don't believe that these two dudes are actually friends off and on screen. And that's what makes their interplay, regardless of it being a script, so believable and so real. It feels real because it is real. Because they are friends. And you can never take that out of this movie. Because if these two dudes, if Winters and Reeves weren't friends in real life, I don't think we'd be doing this podcast about a third movie. I I genuinely don't. Well, I think they were so smart when it came to the editing of the film. And keeping Bill and Ted a little bit separate from the rest of the kids in school. Because I went back and read the script. And I know that they filmed this part where... There's a, a section where they go off to school in the morning, like they wake up and they almost seem to wake up together kind of thing, but they're they're together all the time and they go to school and they're at the bus stop for school, either getting off the bus or, or um, about to get on the bus. I think they're getting off the bus and they're like doing their thing, playing air guitar and this kind of stuff. And they interact with other kids that are there. And there's like a football guy who's just like, you guys are a couple miscreants. And of course they don't know what miscreants means, but we get to see that they're not liked at school, but I like the way that the movie plays out where they just seem like they're there and they're doing their thing. And they really don't interact with any other students. They interact with the teachers and that's about it, you know? And, and that's pretty much just Bernie Casey's the only person they interact with. Otherwise, their family seems, other than the one dad, Mr. Logan, everybody else seems pretty okay with these guys doing their thing. To your point from earlier, Chris, it's not like they're smoking down or anything. They're just a little slow, but they seem so good-hearted. It bothers me a lot because it's become the narrative now with the third film, and it's become more prevalent, especially as we transitioned into the 90s stoner comedies dudes where my dude where's my car being obviously a really obvious example and i know that that's you know early 2000s but 2000s and 90s these stoner comedy movies this gets lumped in with those and i've never understood why because they're not written like stoners they're just written like big dumb dumb dumbs i mean they're slow yeah but like they're the kind of we all know people like this we all have friends like this the person who like you said is just kind of a tad slow, but at the end of the day is just genuinely good-hearted person. And if you don't know someone like that, you are that person. That's the way it goes. But, like, it's it's just really weird to me that there's this narrative of, like, this is a stoner comedy. At no point in any of these movies do they ever smoke weed. At no point do they even, like, signal that they're going to smoke or anything. Like, they don't get out of their van and there's smoke coming out. Like, they don't even do that. And it's just weird to me because it feels like it diminishes how smartly written the characters are by just going oh it's a dumb stoner comedy like it's it's really not none of them are for that matter especially not the second one yeah and i i think that even in interviews with uh ed solomon and chris matheson they said it was 
like a specific thing. Yeah, they're not stoners. That's that's almost the antithesis of what they are because they're you know they're too innocent even for that. They're you know, and and I feel like there is kind of that thing with particularly stoner duos throughout the ages, back to Cheech and Chong, up to Jay and Silent Bob and Harold and Kumar. But I mean, these guys are closer parallel to. I mean, the, the closest it had really was like Wayne's World, where Wayne and Garth, you know, they were the same kind of characters, but not stoners in really any respect either. But these guys are infinitely more likable than Wayne and Garth. Oh, absolutely. I feel, at least, and that's my opinion. I mean, I love Wayne's World, but but there's just such an eternal sweetness to Bill and Ted that you just can't fabricate with anything else. Does that come from Keanu? Like, is that a Keanu thing? Like, is it Keanu Reeves? Because that's kind of like, it feels like a, like... A lot of it is Keanu. I'm sure Keanu definitely helps, <laughs> especially with the way he's sort of just persevered as being, you know, in the public eye, a legitimately good person. And even Alex Winter, who's stayed behind the camera as he's gotten older, he's, you know, I follow him all over social media, and he's the kind of person I'm actually proud to still be following after all these years. The story I always tell, the first time I, I spoke to Alex Winter was when we did a Freaked episode. I was surprised at how serious of a human being he is because he's like an actual movie, uh, you know, classically trained director from NYU. And like, you wouldn't tell it from the character he plays in this movie. Oh, yeah. And his his student films and everything. And oh, my God, the, the idiot box, like the things he made, especially early on. Freaked is probably my favorite comedy of all time. I I adore Freaked. Freaked is my favorite movie of all time, period. I fucking love Freaked so much. I don't want this to become a Freaked podcast. No. Just take me out back and beat me to death now, please. Oh, I just lament regularly the fact that now Freaked is currently probably in the Disney vault, because that was a Fox release, so who knows if we're ever going to see that come back out again. Yeah, if there were any sort of contemporaries, like, these are not Jeff Spicoli, but I think that that's where people get these guys confused. They're much closer to... The main two guys, um, was it Chance, Chainsaw and Frasier, I think, from Summer School, which was 87. They're Chainsaw and Dave. Thank yeah. you. So, yeah, that's 87 Summer School. They're much closer to them than they are to Bud and Doyle from Biodome, you know? But, but people would. <laughs> or Jay and Silent Bob. Right. But people would want to say, like, these are the same characters. But it's like, no, 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 no. I don't see Dave and Chainsaw smoking down. I definitely see the two idiots from Biodome smoking down. And it's just like, yeah, that's your, your preference. Do what you want to do. But these guys, they're just good hearted. And I could picture them with enough hard work actually managing to write a song that's going to unite the world, you know? <laughs> but yet they somehow managed to never do that. <laughs> Which is the ultimate irony of the of the series, right? Because once we finally get the third film, we see kind of what the actual rub is from the get-go, but I, I, as much as I agree, Mike, they're too stupid to write the song. <laughs> they, it, it prevails even when they go 16 months into the future, they still can't figure out how to capture lightning in a bottle when they get back apparently but i also think that's kind of the magic of it is is the idea that whether something good needs to happen or not you can't force it and i feel like that's that's kind of what works about the characters is that they are so natural aside from the current movie being about them trying to force that one song for the last 30 years the first movie's presentation with this idea of these two lovable ding-dongs going back in time and finding all of these famous 
people from history, you know, and I would say that of of the movies, this is the one that swings for the fence with the most famous because you get a, a pretty good smattering of folks. You get Napoleon, Socrates, Freud, Genghis Khan, Beef Oven. I mean, you get all these people that are so recognizable in the third movie. I would say does it a little bit. It doesn't really as verge as hard as this one does. But man, I mean, the people that they have, the actors that they have playing these supporting characters, Terry Camilleri, Dan Shore, Tony Steedman, I, I want to mention all of them because they're all so good. I mean, they're all so well cast and they they embody these characters so much so that like I can't think of Abraham Lincoln anymore without thinking of him going party on dudes like I can't. Well, I love that so many of these roles, they don't even have a line, you know, like like Al Young as Genghis Khan. He doesn't really say anything, but he's fantastic. I mean, King Al Young is always fucking fantastic. I just love that guy. And he's just always one of those, like, that guys that shows up and usually is such an ass kicker. And here again, he's doing that, but he seems to be having so much fun in this role. I don't remember if Joan of Arc has a line, but Jane Weedland, the always cute Jane Weedland showing up as Joan of Arc, she's fucking fantastic as well. And there's just so many times where, like, these characters... They, I mean, Socrates, he barely says anything, and he's fucking fantastic again. All of this, like, uh, communicating through facial expressions, it's wonderful. He, in particular, has that very childlike wonder every time he sees something new, and it's, that like, the yeah, the guy who plays Socrates in particular always stood out to me as just, like, he kind of ca- captures that same innocence that Bill and Ted have in his time. And, and that's what I, that innocence kind of goes through all of these characters. Like, I mean, the, the only one who doesn't feel like it quite fits is, you know, Genghis Khan, but even he's having fun once he gets to the mall. <laughs> Separating Napoleon out from the rest of them, having him in his own little adventure where he gets to be a dick. And, and that's great. I love that they made that choice to not keep him with the rest of the historical figures and to separate him out into that whole Ziggy Piggy water slide narrative. That's wonderful because that could have been just arduous, but I love when they cut back to him. It's great to have a good story to cut back to. And I love that the name Socrates is now part of the pop culture zeitgeist. It's like part of pop culture now, so much so that like, if you've seen Bill and Ted and you're a clown, you say Socrates, like even in normal conversation or beef oven. And like that to me, again, we talked about like the staying power of these movies. That's a testament to the sticking power of these movies that like you have taken the name of someone who has no rhyme or reason to be associated with this movie other than you wrote him into it. And now when people say Socrates, half of us say Socrates because we're just smart asses and we've seen Bill and Ted, but like even Keanu and Alex Winter in a recent interview, they even talked about it. And it's like, it's a thing. And like addressing it and them talking about it is even funnier because like it is a thing and it is because of this movie. That's where it comes from. Yeah, I think the one that that always stuck with me that I I don't think people reference as much, but when they're uh, introducing all the characters to Missy and they refer to Bob Genghis Khan. (laughs) 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 That's always been my favorite one. And that's the thing, too. It's like Missy, who could have been an awful character, this woman who, if you describe her arc through the three movies, or even in the first movie, that she was, uh, you know, married to the one guy's dad and then moved over and married the other guy's dad and just 
she could be seen as like this awful spider woman, but it's like, no, she seems very genuine. She, she seems like a very lovely person, and she was a great babysitter, and now she's a great stepmom as well. Just really speaks to the lack of cynicism in this script, which is, I feel like, a thing that, especially as the years have gone by, has really gone by the wayside. The characters even treat her with respect. The characters aren't like, oh, you any derogatory term for a woman. They don't do any of that. And like th- like you just said, Josh, like that cynicism would be there now. Even in the newest film, it wasn't there, thankfully. But like you would expect it from the late 80s, early 90s, when you have the rise of grunge and the rise of cynicism in pop culture, at least to the forefront. And like this was right there before it. But if you had given this film like two years and different writers, they may have mined it for different jokes that would not have aged as well and or aged at all. Even Deacon, the little brother character, like he could have been a dick to Napoleon and just been a a total little shit. But instead, he just kind of reacts naturally that Napoleon is a jerk and just ditches him at the mall kind of thing, you know, like just ditches him. And then it's like, we don't worry about Deacon. Now it's following the Napoleon story. But Deacon could have played awful practical jokes on Napoleon. Yeah, it was the era of the antagonistic brat, brat, like Bart Simpson was just coming into into popular culture. We were right behind Home Alone, like shitty little kids were just around the corner. What's funny is he comes back in the third movie and then you kind of almost forget that he was a character in the first movie because he's not in the second at all. At all, at all. They reference his Easter basket, and that was about it. The one person we haven't talked about yet, and this is the person that initially drew me to the movie, was none other than my favorite stand-up comedian of all time and one of the funniest people who has ever walked the face of this earth, George Carlin. He is not only amazing in this film, he's amazing in general, but he brings a groundedness to this movie that you don't expect from a George Carlin performance. He grounds this universe, this over-the-top universe where these two rock stars become, yeah, like you said, gods, I guess. It's never really explained. Like, they're the leaders through which all of the world is bay? Question mark? I don't know. Uh, They're super important. Like, he grounds that bizarre universe in a sense of reality that is important for a movie like this to sell the concept all the way. He sees them as they are and doesn't make any judgments or anything. He's just there to help them. And he could be like, oh my gosh, you know, like it would be like going back for a Christian person and seeing that Jesus was a total doofus. You know, it's like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't such a good idea for me to see my heroes in such a state. But he doesn't seem to cast judgment. He's just like, I'm here to help. Don't forget, you, your report's due tomorrow. The time in San Dimas is the time every place else, and go for it. And he doesn't say, like, okay, you two idiots, you know, you got to straighten up and fly right, or else the world isn't going to go the way that it needs to. Okay, great. He's wonderful in that way. He is one of the best parts of these movies. He shows the characters respect when no one else does, which is funny. And he only shows up very few times, really, between those first two movies. But he sets, especially by him being the first thing you see in the first movie, he really sets the tone and the guideline, you know, for, I mean, just that character in the future. Like, he he gives you everything with his delivery. And and I love that you can tell that he punched up the uh, original monologue of his because there's not a more George Carlin line than bowling scores are way up, golf scores are way down. <laughs> 
his voice is there despite the fact that he doesn't get to swear once. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's a warmth to him in this performance that, from what I understand, is a lot closer to the real George Carlin than we ever got to see on stage. Cause the George on stage, he was, he was pretty pissed off, especially the older he got. But, you know, like I read his autobiography. There's, there's a book of like love letters he sent to, to his last wife. Which is amazing, by the way. Yes, like there's so much more to him than what the audience was used to seeing. And I feel like Rufus Carlin is probably closer to the real man than we ever got. The books of his love letters is it is the most heartrending, but like heartwarming thing you'll ever read from someone who at one point in his career said shitting down a woman's throat. That was in the Aristocrats movie, which is amazing. And you should go watch it. But he opens that movie with. If you contrast this opening of this film with George Carlin and that one, uh, this is a lot more tame. But it's the same person. I mean, again, that, what we expect from Carlin, like you said, Josh, is this foul-mouthed, ostensibly, quote-unquote, old man. And, like, there's none of that here. But it is still George Carlin. Yeah, and, you know, as an aside, man, I think every day, just with the current climate of the world, if he were still here now... Oh, oh I would wish. Be, I wish. If there was anybody I wished was still alive in the age of Twitter, oh, he would just be having a meltdown every single damn day. <laughs> I just wish I could know what George Carlin thought specifically about Trump or COVID or anything, because the world is a lot less bright with George Carlin not in it. That is just, I think you'd be like, like 90 at this point, but selfishly, I want him around, obviously. I don't think we'll ever have a voice quite like that again. No, and it's a shame. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with Billy the Kid himself, Dan Shore, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Tell me a little bit about how you initially got involved with uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bill and Ted was an audition. Um, at the time, this was happened right after I was on a series regular on Cagney and Lacey. And then I was, I was killed on my final episode of Cagney and Lacey. That episode won Best Television Show, Best Director, Best actress for Sharon Glass um, for killing me. And uh, I was just turned like 30. And I go, oh, shit. Oh, now what? Um, I did one. Two, I did. I, I worked nonstop for the next three years doing plays, movies. And I think the first thing I got, I had I auditioned and I got Billy the Kid after playing, uh, you know, a cop on Cagney and Lacey, a New York street cop. All of a sudden, I'm Billy the Kid. I auditioned and uh, nailed it, Billy the Kid. And I was still, I was 30 years old, looking 23 still, looking like a kid. And uh, that was it. I just auditioned once, got a call the same day. You got the job going off to uh, Arizona and went. And in, in case you hadn't noticed, that movie was a lot of fun. I mean, once again, that was a, I just came from Cagney which is a very serious TV show. And I'm, of course, Oh, the comic relief. And, um, 
a comic relief, a obnoxious New York street punk. And next thing you know, I'm Billy the Kid having a blast in the middle of Arizona with, you know, Sigmund Freud and, uh, and Beethoven. <laughs> and Socrates. And Socrates. I had a great love Socrates. Loved him. Man is, yeah. So tell me a little bit about working with the cast, because obviously, I mean, you've you've already, you know, it's kind of gotten into it a little bit. But tell me what it was like working with, you know, everyone on the cast, because like you already mentioned, I mean, everybody had it was you can tell when a set has the infectious kind of environment that that and, you know, like we've already talked about strange behavior, similar, similar situation. What was that? What was it like working on the set of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Well, the difference is when I'm on Bill and when I was on uh, Strange Behavior, I was the lead. Right. <laughs> well, you know, on Bill and Ted, I was just, I'm one of the guys in the bar. So, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the cast. We were the guys in the bar and the two kids were working the whole time. Keanu and Alex and absolute sweethearts. Those two kids were exactly Bill and Ted. They were kids in a candy store. Um, and we, all the surrounding um, noodle heads, you know, we just circled their aura. You know what I mean? We mm-hmm. just walked gently around them and nudged. And that was our job on this thing. And I do remember having such a great time with Jane Wheedlin, um, and I still see Jane, and, I, and Pickle Dick, Terry Camilleri played Napoleon. And I were friends. We had, I had directed him in a, no, I didn't. I acted in a play with Terry Camilleri before we had done this movie. And then I directed him in another play later on in New, in LA. Um, he's a great actor and we were really pretty damn close. Um, before the movie, during the movie and after the movie. And, um, Al Leong, delicious human being. Um, yeah. I mean, had fun. I just remember a lot of, a lot of time in the bar with Robert Barron with Abe Lincoln. Uh, yeah, lovely. And uh, hanging out with George Carlin in Italy was one of the highlights of that that shoot. Yeah, you you mentioned kind of being one of the guys in the bar when it comes to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I am of the mindset, and I think that this may ruffle some feathers. As good as Keanu and Alex Winter are in the movie, because they are fantastic. Yeah, I think for me, whenever I think about the film and you know talking about you know the second and the third movie because you know it is 2020 and somehow a third bill and ted movie actually fucking came out um yeah the first film's historical figures because the second film doesn't really have it and the third film does the first film's historical figures are so fun and they really are i mean like you mentioned you know Terry Camilleri and Rod Loomis and Robert Barron, like y'all brought such a fun kind of aura to the film that yeah, I don't, I, I kind of like y'all's performances more because like you said, you are kind of the straight men of the film, but at the same time, you're not. Yeah. We're the noodle heads. Yeah. We're the noodle heads who stimulate the noodle heads. And, um, but the, their naivety is what makes the film magical. Um, their actual authentic naivete, it, it's real. And what was really weird, what I remember about that more than anything, and I really believe this, is that I thought Alex Winter was going to be the big star, if anybody was. I didn't know Keanu was hot. Nobody did. Who knew? Right. It's not like, and Keanu, Alex reminded me of me, you know, the cute blonde haired kid who was, you know, oh, Keanu didn't, and I'm, but, Keanu became this thing and I didn't know it. I had no idea, no idea that he would become what Keanu became. 
Um, I, we knew he was delicious. You know what I mean? He yeah. is as good a person as he seemed. You want to be around him. Um, he has an aura. It's uh, just uh, an energy that is absolutely special. It's real. It's really lovely. And I just had no idea how handsome he was. Close up, it's different. Um, who knew? Um, but we found out. And I thought Alex was going to be the big star. And I guess he's a director and was always a young director and is now. But um, they both did well. Well, and he and Alex Winter has directed a film that holds a very special place in my heart that, again, is similar to Strange Behavior, similar to Bill and Ted's in that it has a very strong following of people who are very opinionated. But again, it's not mainstream. And that was his film. He did his first directorial film, Freaked, which he did in the 90s. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Long, long time ago. He yeah. Was really young. Um yeah. So other than kind of your interaction, you know, with the cast and, and obviously, you know, being, you know, effusive praise for them, what what kind of stood out for you working on Bill and Ted? Any scenes or kind of memories that you have or stories that you have that you could you know re- relate? Arizona was I mean, I just remember I, I hate to say it, but it was it was it was a blast. I mean, we were on um, we were in the middle of uh, we were in Arizona. Tempe, Arizona, and we were the highlight of the the season. I mean, we're shooting a movie and everybody came to find us. And I remember it being just very playful and a great bar at the end of every day's shoot. Um, that's hardly a recommendation. But uh, uh, Europe, when we went to Italy, we went to Italy for two weeks uh, to Rome and walking the streets of Rome with George Carlin, um, with Tony Steedman, it was just, and fine dining. We would have these incredible meals. Uh, that's what I remember. I remember more than shooting the movie, the adventures we had in Rome together. I remember the dinners. I remember the lunches. We would be at the castle. I remember the, one of the best days of my life were at the castle where the, uh, uh, the, the, where, where they found the, 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 the beautiful girls, the princesses. Right. At the castle. Outside of Rome, Italy, an hour outside of Rome. I remember lunch. I mean, we were each given two bottles of wine, pasta, meat, salads, the best food we ever ate in our lives. I remember having siestas every day on the ground at this castle before we shoot again for shoot from like eight in the morning until one in the afternoon, eat for two hours, take a nap then shoot for an hour after that. I just remember, this was the best schedule I'd ever seen. Um, I just remember just being an absolute adventure, an absolute silly adventure. Uh, and every time we went to a new place, it was like, wow, we're at, with Socrates. We're finding Socrates. We're, uh, you know, we're meeting Genghis Khan, you know, Abe Lincoln. I mean, that was, it was really, ah, it, it, the best way to describe it, it's like elementary school. And I'm dressed up like Billy the Kid in an elementary school play but in the best way possible in an elementary school way not like it's it didn't feel like you know you're at carnegie mellon university and trying to really tell the absolute truth no it was like we were playing we were kids pretending to be these characters and we didn't want the director didn't want us to flesh them out i remember i got cast as billy the kid because i talk like this like billy the kid and the director, I came in and I read all this history about Billy the Kid and I showed up in the first day of shoot because I was this character actor. I could change. I'm fairly malleable. Right. And I showed up and I started with a left hand because he's the left handed gun. I started twitching because he was syphilitic. And 
the director says, why are you twitching? What is wrong with you? I said, no, I read about Billy the Kid. I don't want Billy the Kid. I want generic cowboy. You gave me generic cowboy at the audition. Do generic cowboy. So I did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, Tony Steedman said, generic philosopher. You know, Al Young, generic hun. <laughs> and that's what we all did. Jane Whitland, you know, Joan of Arc. And we all did generic characters of, you know, and that is what we wanted. That was our, that we wanted. And that's what we did. And that's fun. That is what you do in elementary school. And that's what it felt like. Elementary school kids in old bodies, older bodies. But uh, yeah. Pairing it down to its base element is what it sounds like. Yeah. Just a generic flavor. Give us that flavor. Be a cowboy. You know. Well, and, and so many years later, it, it works. I mean, again, for me, like I mentioned, and I'm not just I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, when I think about that first film, it really is the interactions yeah. between you know Alex Winter and Keanu uh, with y'all. I mean, y- you know, that's yeah. that's the driving. I mean, because again, the second and third film. You know, they 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 kind of they don't feel like they need to ape the first film entirely, which is a good thing, because I mean, that's what makes the first film so great is there there aren't really a lot of films at the time in 89 coming out where this is kind of being used as a humorous feature in a film to show, oh, you know, they're interacting with these historical figures and yeah, it, it works so well. Yes. And I've got to say, I find it I found it to be uh pretty upsetting that they didn't think they didn't value us enough to put us the ones of us who are still alive and young i hang out with jane wheatland the two of us you know we're in our 60s but you wouldn't know it and it's not relevant we know how to play we're still playable and the fact that they didn't reference us and terry camillary ali young is still around um i, I was I, I couldn't understand i understood it in the second one which i didn't see but the third one no no what are you crazy we're still alive none of us is dead we time travel so i don't know how they didn't reference their people i just don't get it and um i don't know if that affected the sales of the movie i know that it doesn't tron that they completely ignored us um ignored me um and i don't get it it's one of those things i i did speak with um Ed Solomon, one of the creators, and he told me they created a, a, a cameo for me. I said, exactly. And it never happened. And that fucking was an insult to me. I'm sorry. Well, and I, I actually would agree with you 100%. And this is also, here's another thing. When you, I've been in this business for a really long time, and uh, I'm not rich, but I, I'm fine. But on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, none of us made a residual on that movie ever. Um, my entire residuals for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure over 40 years have not amounted to more than $500. Um, Orion, who made the film, went bankrupt. The film was sold, and Lord knows what it was, how low it was sold for, and we're getting residuals based on that sale. So we basically get shit. I have never gotten a residual for Bill and Ted for more than $8, ever. And um, that so, – so – we never got paid for this movie. So the fact that they wouldn't add us to the film when it's going to be successful just to throw us a fucking bone is beyond belief. And um, maybe they don't know that. I don't know. They have to know that because they didn't get residuals either. I, that's why I couldn't understand it. And uh, and 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 I don't know. It's sort of like I'm I hope they do well. I'm I love I love. Keanu, I love Alex. I loved Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. They were brilliant, really friendly, great guys. Um, but I don't know what they're thinking. And um, you know, I, I we did we did need a bone. You know, it's not like you know if I were in Bill and Ted, people would go oh, shit, the guy's still alive. Fuck, let's call Dan. 
You know what I mean? That's what I ended. Not that um, wouldn't change my life, but they, they, I'd get a few phone calls. Well, and I, you know, as someone who is a such a huge fan of the series, because I am a huge fan, yeah. I, I one hundred percent agree with you that for me, the fact that you know, like you've mentioned yourself, Jane Weedlin, anyone who was still around who helped yes. make that initial film a success, it is a little bit of a. Sh- it's not a little bit. It's a. It's a massive shame, frankly, because well, it it makes no sense, you know, because that's why people are seeing the second one, not just for those two guys. It's not just those two guys not, not mind you the new people might be great i know daniel door uh daniel door who played uh i guess mozart his dad Savidor, was a friend of mine great guy a wonderful actor and daniel door is his kid and he, i've known him since he was 10 and um he's a great kid and he i'm sure he was great in the movie and he expected me to be in it and uh, i wasn't and i'm sure he's great and i'm sure the other people are great but to not bring back the other people why are you doing bill and ted i agree and and there was a scene at the end of the third film where you could have had it and it wouldn't have it would have been that you know as much as i did enjoy the third film it did feel it feels like they shirked fan service which i understand because if you have remakes and reboots and reimaginings and revisitings of films from the 80s and 90s if you do fan service people go well you're fucking doing fan service and stop pandering but it's not fan service to include it's the people that bill made the Ted's first film excellent adventure this is bill and ted's excellent adventure. you're not bringing back dead people you're bringing back historical figures in right. a movie about historical figures it's and making the movie is fan pandering there's no point in making bill and ted's excellent adventure three without a fan base who wants to see it exactly it, you know what came first also as much fun as keanu and alex have together you know that is incredibly important that's why i talk about them so much they love each other so much and it's real and and same with ed and chris and i assume the the four of them have a really 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 great bond and Good for them. I'm all for it. But it's sort of like, you know, yeah, there were there were uh, other relatives in that family. I agree. I, I agree. I, I haven't I haven't read or seen anything as to why they didn't, which to me is just weird to them. It's it's a non-issue. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't even consider it. And um, now, mind you, I'm a little bit bitter um, and unabashedly at this point in my life. If someone asked me, are you a little bit bitter? My answer is always, fuck yeah. Um, do I get it? Ah, not really. But do I, you know, do I still adore them? Absolutely. The fact that they don't think of me is was weird. I find that to be weird. You think of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, like... I've never met you and you think of me. Exactly. You don't? I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, again, I, I expected when I watched it, I ex- I thoroughly expected to see a scene where yeah. it it would, you know, it would be Bill and Ted tripping through time and then they would open, the, you know, they would open the phone booth and there you would be standing with, you know, Joan of Arc or something to that effect. And it's like, holy shit, like this is... Yeah. It's not pandering in as much as like you've mentioned, the film's already kind of pandering, but like you've seen those, you haven't seen those characters in so long that even a little check in to see what they're doing would have been. Welcome. I told them, I called them up. I said, what if Jane, we, uh, Billy, Billy the Kid and Joan of Arc are married in New Jersey and fist fighting every day? I mean, what if you just have a walk by shot? You look in a window, these two are yelling at each other and keep moving. <laughs> it's like geez, sure. that would do so much. It would bring them the whole thing full circle. But that's beside the point. It's just, that's my opinion, you know. But then again, you know, I've had that other experience with, with Tron where they did Tron 2 without me. And then, then I got the phone call and after it, you know, to, to be in the, uh, 
the DVD. And I'm like, wow, somebody finally figured it out, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that. What is that called? The, the day, Tron, the day after? The day after. The yeah. day after. And I'm going, because it's setting up number three. And I'm going, yay, my career's back. And um, it's not like I fucked it up. We did a really, really good job. And Tron 3, I don't know. I don't know. Supposedly. They they have said that it is coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I'm still alive and they call me. I hope so, too. I mean, again, I, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, you know, again, yeah. if people who understand their quality of acting... If they're upset because they're not involved, it's not it's it's not because they didn't want to be involved. It's because they did. Yeah, exactly. We did. I did. And um, yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing. This industry is, and I and I just saying it. If you are not on the radar, you're off the radar. Right. And it has nothing to do with your talent, your qualities, your because there are so many great actors. I have no. You know, I used to as a kid when I was competing. I would see a film and go, I could do better than that. Now I look and I go, I don't know if I could do better than that, but I could do that. And, um, you know, and at my age, anyone who's still in the business has always been good. Do you know what I mean? Any role that I would be up for, there are hundred great actors. So I have no problem with that reality. So it's going to take a, someone throwing me a, a line to bring me back into the game. And it's just, it, that's that's all it's going to take. Because there's me and 100 guys my age here in New York, 200, 300, 400, I don't even know anymore, who are very capable, who are excellent, and do what they do well. And um, you only get a job, an audition, because you were in something yesterday. you know. And if you're not in something yesterday, they forget you. Because there's the other hundred guys that they remember. The public is the public uh, mindset is very fickle, unfortunately, when it comes to entertainment. No, I, the casting director's mind is very fickle, and uh, they're the ones who are controlling who gets in the room. And if they don't remember me, I can't blame them. It's not their fault. That's why you want to get called back for something like Bill and Ted. Go out, shoot it, and they go, oh, "Fuck, Dan Shore's alive, and damn, he looks good." Right? Wow, let's bring him back in. Do you know what I mean? They're not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any scenes that you filmed that didn't make it into the final movie? Oh, God, I don't remember. I don't believe so. I think I don't believe so. Okay. Uh, There may have been, but I really don't remember that. You know, what was your reaction to watching the film when it came out? And have you seen the original film recently? Uh, Have I seen it recently? No. I have not seen it recently. My reaction then was, this is really good. It's really funny. It's really silly. Much more than we expected. Much better than we expected. Um, and I respect. also remember it was not a hit either. It was right. another one that wasn't a hit until later and then became this thingy that lived forever. Um, yeah. It's so funny. I've been in these movies that were... That's the thing. I've been in these movies that became long-time hits, but at the beginning, I remember Tron, when Tron came out, Disney was so disappointed. And it's a massive success. It became a massive success. But they were disappointed because they wanted Star Wars numbers. Right. You know, they got Tron numbers. They only made, you know, $30 million instead of $600 million. And um, so I remember being in a lot of really special movies that have lasted a long, long time and never became hits. I think the I was in a movie called Wise Blood, which ran, opened the Cannes Festival, ran in Paris in an art house for two years. 
ran in New York in an art house for a year. Um, that was the only movie that, that I think that I've made that did far better than they expect. And these guys, they, these guys have lasted longer than that. But I don't remember Bill and Ted being a hit at the beginning. And, you know, kind of the, the issue with you not being in the third film aside, which, again, I, as far as I'm concerned, and clearly with oh, yourself, so. it's a big issue. Uh, had, yeah. What did you think of watching the third film? I didn't. Oh, you haven't? Oh, you even know. Oh. No, the gotcha. way I describe it is, the way I love to describe this very simply is, I love my ex-wife. I'm happy she's married to someone else. I just don't want to see her fucking. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so that's I get how it. I feel. I, I'm good. I'm happy for her. I'm happy for them. I just don't want to see it because that's mine. It's my ex-wife. I don't want to see my ex-wife. Sure. Well, I completely get um, it. It's, and, I, you know, this, if you think I'm being bitter, I don't think this is bitter. I just think this is, is it's my perspective on this universe at this point. And I, every time now I do one of these podcasts, I am not hesitating because I want people to understand that it is a reality that you, when you skip over people that helped make this thing, you're not helping their life. You could help their, not their life. My life is fine. My career. Sure. You could help my career. You could help Terry Camilleri's career, Jane Whelan's acting career. Um, you know, it, have you seen us in films lately? You know, you see me on TV every now and then, but not everybody watches Blue Bloods. Sure. You know? Oh, yeah. I don't. I mean, I barely watch Blue Bloods. I've watched it when I'm in it. But it's, you know, it's, um, I would rather be in a Bill and Ted movie, show up, do two scenes, walk out, and then all of a sudden casting directors will call and I get my fucking auditions back. And, uh, yeah, I remember when I, when I started my career a long, 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 long time ago, which is, and it's true, don't say anything negative ever was part of the rallying cry. And I'm just, I'm just, fuck that. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. You I'm, know what I mean? No, I mean, you, again, you have, you're told the same thing when you do podcasts. You don't ruffle yeah. anybody's feathers because you could get on a, on a list that doesn't exist but totally exists of people who open their mouth and say something. Exist. Yeah. I'm going to say it and, and because the point is I'm not working now anyway. What are they going to do? Not put me in Bill and Ted's 4? They already didn't put me in Bill and Ted's 3. Sure. I mean, so what are they going to do? And but I don't think they know what it would, how it could help me. And I think that they would if they knew it. And that's you know what I mean. They're not. These are good people. I'm sure if they felt it or thought about it, you know, they would do it. And the Tron people figured it out after the fact when they realized, wait a second, all those old Tron fans, they want to see Ram. to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Once they made history. I must see to it that you die. Now, they are history. Bill and Ted are dead. Welcome to hell. 
It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, Death? But they're having one hell of a time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. We got totally lied to by our album covers, man. Taking in the sights. Not bad, dude. We totally knew a guy got one of those in his bucket of chicken. Making new friends. Excuse us, dude. But is there any way we can get back? You may challenge me to a contest. J7. You have sunk my battleship. Best two out of three. What? Enjoying the family. <laughs> no way! Invading the present. I totally possess my dad. Battling <laughs> the future. You metal, dude! Excuse us, but your shoes are untied. And meeting their maker. God, congratulations on Earth. Not to mention your other great planets. Mars, Jupiter, Uranus. It's the comeback of all time. Bill and Ted's bogus journey. It's a trip. Best of seven? Damn right. Ah, oh, dude. Left hand red. Bill and Ted's bogus journey. All right, we are back and we are talking about the Bill and Ted trilogy. And I have to ask you, Chris, it sounds like you watched this one right after you watched the first one. Is that right? Yeah. I remember at the time, and this was, you know, a decade plus ago, thinking like, this is the most disappointing sequel I have ever seen in my entire life. But now, with the uh, benefit of many years, about 15 at least, past where the point of initial watching, this is my favorite of the three. A lot of that goes to one of my favorite character actors and a truly, similarly to George Carlin, another person who, when he is no longer with us, he thankfully still is, uh, the world will be a lot less bright of a place, Mr. William Sadler. He steals the goddamn show in this movie, right? Every scene that he's in is better because he's in it. <laughs> like, and it's, I don't know. I love this movie. I love everything about it. I love that Station was a fucking accidental joke that then went on to become the one of the funniest jokes in this entire movie. And, this, and it gets referenced in the third one. But I'm curious, Josh, what you think of this film. But this is my favorite of the three. Growing up with the movies, like, I don't remember the first one being released. I... My mom was working in a video store when I was a kid, so I'm pretty sure I saw Bogus Journey as soon as it hit video, at the very least, if she didn't take me to see it. And in my mind, it was hard to separate the two. I think I saw Bogus Journey a lot more as a kid, but that one, I feel like it spoke to me a lot more early on than the original. I didn't pick up again on the original until I was closer, like, middle school, whereas I would rewatch Bogus Journey over and over, because it was just such a weird movie. But, you know, as a kid, you don't think, oh, this is a bizarre concept. <laughs> you just think, oh, these guys are doing something that was really weird. But, yeah, for my money, I I'd say over the years, I've always considered Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey to possibly be, it's certainly on the list of, like, the best sequels ever made. And the fact that it came out in theaters right after Terminator 2, both of which are now 30 years old, which is really weird to think about, that might be the best summer for sequels of all time. <laughs> I, I think Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, you know, it goes neck and neck with Excellent Adventure as 
to which one I prefer, and it really just depends on the day. And a lot of that, like you said, comes down to William Sadler's performance is unbelievable. In a just world, you know, if they cared more about comedic performances, I feel like he would have gotten an Oscar for that role because he's so good. I think it's the funniest comedic character in any movie I have ever seen. He's just unbelievable. You might be a king of lowly street sweeper, but sooner or later you'll dance with the reaper. I mean, he wrote that shit himself. Like, that's, that is how committed William Sadler is to the role. That indeterminate accent <laughs> and, and all of his, you know, little needs for reassurance. My favorite moment just being, you know, what about the my butt? Like, <laughs> he's, he's just so innocent for something so dark. And I, I love that switch. What was it with the early 90s? Like, this, and I also grew up with Last Action Hero, which I, I'm sure Mike doesn't want to talk about again. I think Mike actively doesn't want to talk about that. But what was in that zeitgeist where the movies I grew up the, loving the most as a kid both had very direct references to Ingmar Bergman's uh, The Seventh Seal? They both had that specific version of the Grim Reaper that's just such a, a left-field thing when you really think about it. What about you, Mike? Where do you come down on Bogus Journey? I saw this one theatrically as well, and I was actually working at the movie theater when this one came out, and I think my expectations were a little too high for this one. I still like this movie a lot, but I kind of go back and forth. It doesn't feel as baked to me as the first movie. It feels like there's just stuff that doesn't hit right sometimes, and I'm not sure what that is. Like, Personally, I don't like Station at all. I just didn't like the character of Station and his big old butt. <laughs> I do like that one scene. You got a big butt, bro. The fuck are you guys on? I like that they kind of just said, you know what? We're not even going to deal with time travel in this movie. That I really appreciate it because I could have just done a carbon copy of the first movie and said, hey, we haven't written this song yet. We really need to like go find it. Well, why don't we go steal it from ourselves in the future or something like that as, you know, just as, a, as an idea. But in this one, they're just like, we're going to, we're going to die and go to hell and we're going to get replaced by robots and all this shit is going to happen. We're going to have to have a battle of the bands. Fucking A. Yeah. It's fantastic that they went that route. And this one always felt like it was more. Alex Winter humor kind of coming into it. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it just always felt like there was a little bit more of that idiot box freaked um, squeal of death kind of way about it. Like I always like when they cut to the TV screen, they're showing Star Trek and then they go to that actual area where the, uh, Kirk was fighting the Gorn and have that big scene there. It's just like, that's really cool. I love when Pam Greer shows up. I love Denomalos. Uh, Joss Acklin is fantastic. I love that he is super serious and reacting to, you know, he's doing exactly what I was saying Rufus didn't do, which is, what are these two idiots doing? He really hates these guys, actively hates them, and I kind of appreciate that. Yeah, he's very much the voice of cynicism, which it's the only real voice of cynicism besides maybe Ted's dad in the two movies. You know, he's he's the only true outlier that, that you ever see the other adults want them to succeed, even though they're not seeing them succeed, which also a, a weird through line that, you know, the first movie had Bernie Casey. The second one had Pam Greer. 
Like, I'm not sure what the situation behind that was, but I love that they just threw in, like, black exploitation legends in this, you know, white teenager movie for no reason. That was a really, kind of an early in- entry point for me as a kid to get into that. This is the first time we've mentioned him specifically. Hal Landon Jr. as Ted's father in the scene where they're in the police station and Keanu possesses him is fucking fantastic because the fact that Hal Landon Jr. is doing the thing with his arms where it seems like he doesn't know how to control his arms is such a odd choice, but at the same time, it totally works. And I like how they're going in. They're like, oh, it worked in The Exorcist <laughs> 1 and 3. That scene, again, you, you could completely gloss over that scene, but that scene is hilarious. Okay, dudes. Well, I mean, fellow policemen. My son, Ted Theodore Logan, and his friend, Bill S. Preston Esquire, have been murdered and replaced by evil robots from the future. You gotta go over and arrest these robots so they don't ruin everything for me and Bill. I mean, uh, my son and Bill. I totally believe you, dude. Yeah. (laughs) Whoa, donuts. It just goes to show, like, how smart everyone involved with these movies is. You know, someone like Roy Brocksmith, very rarely called upon to be a comedic actor. But, man, even he's funny in this scene. And, like, it just... Solomon and Matheson, they really knock it out of the park with this script. I I do understand, Mike, where you're coming from with some of the stuff being half-baked, but... I like the injection of the weird into this movie because that's what it is, right? It's it's the injection of the weird. The first movie is like straightforward time travel. This is like death and heaven and hell and space and time. What I like when sequels do the most is when it feels like an escalation rather than just a continuation. Like the first movie, you know, we went through time. That's insane. What's crazier than going through time? Going to hell, going to heaven, you know, reaching the metaphysical. Dimensional tripping. Yeah, and then finding out that one of the trashed third scripts for the movie uh, ended up being Biodome, which would have been the biggest letdown of all time. <laughs> like, just imagine, yeah, we went to heaven and hell. We we went through time. Now we're, we're in nature. <laughs> yeah, I guess Biodome didn't really work at all anyway, but it really wouldn't have worked with Bill and Ted. I think the question I have is, Mike, how long have you been going to the Faith No More Spiritual and Theological Center. Since before Epic came out. The jokes I didn't get for the longest time. Yeah, that was that was a joke I got for the first time last year, and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you talked about Roy Brocksmith, and the stuff with Hal Landon Jr. and Brocksmith are probably one of my favorite moments in this. And also, to go back to the first one, the stuff in the police station in the first movie, that whole thing of like, Think of the trash can. Think of the trash can. Like, I love that they just, like, skip all that other shit, and it just becomes like, well, and then I would have left the keys right here. It's just literally like Matheson and Solomon are like, look, we know time travel is stupid, and we know we're going to break it. So why don't we just hang a lantern on the fact that we're going to break it and just move on? The funny thing to that is that even with all the, I mean, the 80s was in a weird way defined by time travel movies because you had the Terminator, you had the Back to the Future movies. Star Trek, Terminator, Time Cop, Time After Time. Quantum Leap. Wrinkle in Time, Somewhere in Time. Hot Tub Time Machine. Hot Tub Time Machine. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Basically any movie that deals with time travel. This is known. A lot of actual, like, theoretical physicists have said that Bill and Ted, to their understanding of how time travel would work, gets it right the best. Because... 
in Bill and Ted, everything essentially has already happened, and it happens in that sequential manner. We know that by the virtue of the story, by the, the future existing, that Rufus is there, that they have that society, that Bill and Ted have to become victorious one way or another. And, you know, everything that they do along the way has to speak to that no matter what. You know, they're not stopping Judgment Day from happening, because Judgment Day has already happened, so to speak, but the other way around. I have to say, I've never heard about Biodome being connected to Bill and Ted. What are your sources, Josh? This was something I looked into a long time ago. I'm sure it was just a spec script. Somebody was floating around hoping that they could make it a Bill and Ted movie. I doubt that it was ever close to truly becoming one. It may be like a friend of both the projection booth and the culture cast, Richard Haddam's uh, Under Siege script. It could have just been something like that, where it was like, ah, this could be a thing. There are crazier things that happen, like that one script that was supposed to be a sequel to Seven that had uh, one of the characters as a psychic randomly <laughs> that got turned into something else with Colin Farrell. Or all those spec scripts for uh, X-Files episodes that became, oh, I don't know, Final Destination and The One. Or the scripts that suddenly became Hellraiser films. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that is the most egregious of them all. <laughs> uh, the Hellraiser, the forcing of Pinhead into situations where he does not belong might be kinky, but... Um, it doesn't work in the film sense. So, Though I would kind of like to see him go against Bill Sadler as Death. The two of them playing Twister. The stuff with Death is the best stuff. The, he is such an amazing character, and that hit me just right. Like, we would go around the movie theater quoting the, you have sunk my battleship kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> just all the time because he was so great and i love what a sore loser and little kid he is best five out of seven damn right you can't write a character any better than that right it's just it's so good of all the things that matheson and solomon have been successful at in these three movies as as much as i would i'm sure the three of us would agree ted and bill are very well written death is the master stroke as far as i'm concerned the mere idea that they decided to make him essentially the third character of that movie when he could have just been in hell and then sent them back to Earth. That was the brilliant stroke of genius that the movie really needed to push it over the edge. It is interesting looking at some of the deleted scenes for this. And I know there are like images that are out there and like through the novelizations and the comic books and the scripts. Yeah, I actually did read that novel. I was going to talk about that, but I'll let you I'm sorry, I'll let you jump ahead there. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, just to see what they cut out was interesting, too, that you can still, like, if you're really paying attention, you can see little pieces of what would have been in there, like the idea of them punching Missy rather than blowing her over with the evil robot breath. And you can see in that same scene, I think it's that same scene, where uh, there are Bill and Ted bodysuits that are on the floor, and there's this weird thing that... Bill was actually in Ted's body and Ted was actually in Bill's body and they like unzip themselves and they're it's like, hey, we're we're tricksters. We played a trick on you. He's actually Bill and he's actually Ted. And it's like you can see their empty suits on the floor if you're looking in that scene. Did you guys notice that the princesses that end up with them in the first movie are different than the ones in the second movie? Like Oh, every every time. They end up with different ones. Every single time they end up with different actresses. No, I'm not talking about actresses. I'm talking about the characters. They switch. I don't know why. 
IMDb has it. And that was the first time I'd ever noticed it. And that's, we could talk about why that would be primarily because the princesses are not very well written as characters, even through the third movie. But in Excellent Adventure, Ted and Joanna are together and Bill and Elizabeth are together. And then it's Ted and Elizabeth and Bill and Joanna in the second movie. And then that continues into the third one. It's just like a really weird thing because like they're two very distinct, different characters. One is blonde and one is brunette. And it's like, oh, never mind. Who cares? Well, sometimes you just got to, you know, figure out what works best and, and, and reconstruct your relationships based on that. I know Diane Franklin is still not happy about not being cast as the same princess throughout all three movies. <laughs> She's like, hey, I was there in the first movie. Why didn't you guys call me back for the second or third one? So it kind of weird. And their their wives, definitely in the third one, are a lot younger than they are. It feels very strange how the princesses have somehow uh, regressed in their aging. I mean, it still feels like a missed opportunity in this movie to some extent, only because they don't really get to do much in terms of helping Bill and Ted. And you would think as their partners that they would be a bigger part of the story, considering how they are included in this movie. Yeah, the most important thing feels like the fact that they're part of the band, so they all have to be together. As far as the deleted stuff goes, though, I remember as a kid reading the novelization and not understanding that, you know, a lot of times they would be based on scripts and written before the movie shot. And yeah, there are huge, huge sequences that they wanted to film that were just never there. I mean, there was little stuff like Bill and Ted breaking rocks in hell and actually really enjoying it. But I remember what stood out the most, like the major difference is that on their way to get to the concert at the end of the movie, all the creatures that they, you know, not all creatures, I mean, Colonel Oates is just, you know, an evil man, but everything that they faced off against in hell made its way up to the earth and tried to stop them in this like gigantic highway chase on the way to the concert. And they basically defeated them with the power of love of all things. And, and I, I would kill to see that. It is a curious thing to be fair. I hear it makes one man weep, but another man sing. The stuff that they deleted for as much as I wish it were in the movie, some of the stuff would have slowed the film down like that chase scene. Would have just been, like, unnecessarily expensive, too? <laughs> yeah, which is definitely why it didn't get shot. And also, another one that probably just didn't get shot because they thought it would have been cruel was not in the book, but I love the idea that apparently Denomalous was supposed to die at the end and his eternal hell was being surrounded by his Bill and Ted robots <laughs> for the rest of time. I kind of would have liked that. Yeah, that, that would have been appropriate for him. Well, I know some of that stuff was shot. I don't think the, to your point, the chase was shot, but I know I've seen a shot of the Colonel, Grandma Preston, and the evil bunny in that parking lot. I do love that Alex Winter is pulling double duty in this film as Granny Preston. That is the most Alex Winter touch on the whole movie. That feels like something he would have come up with on his own. It is one step away from Billy Coogan. It, like, it, like, that makeup is disgusting. Like, genuinely gross makeup. And, like, it's intentionally disgusting, but, yeah, holy shit. You're, you're completely right, Josh. It's, like, it, it's, it's a sidestep from Freaked and Idiot Box. Like, it's right, it's right there. One other scene that I wish would have been a little bit more successful was the, and I can barely remember how this goes. I just remember that it doesn't seem to fit that well. It's the, um, uh, uh, when Missy and Solomon and Matheson, 
they have a seance and Bill and Ted come back that way a little bit, but it doesn't seem to really go any place if memory serves. Yeah, there was something else with that. Yeah, it's that's a really bizarre scene. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't believe that it's them, so she like reveals the book that effectively exercises them to hell. But what I don't understand is why what what was her aversion to possibly helping them? It's never explained. It was weird. It was like a way to get Missy into there, but then it just didn't work. I don't know. I feel like the most important thing about that scene is that since I mean Bill and Ted are legitimately good characters, that that seance ritual is the only way to get them to hell legitimately because they're not evil. Why would they go to hell? Which is a question we can save for the third movie, but <laughs> yeah, there's there's no other reason for them to go to hell other than being banished by some kind of ritual. Again, talking about just the things in this movie that I, I just these like weird things that we were maybe noticing this time watching it versus the original times we watched it. I love how it I love how in the Battle of the Bands they actually have Primus is there only because I'm I love, you know, I love Les Claypool and I love his music. But like it is it's kind of weird if you think about this movie and the second movie that an actual band is in this movie performing their music like an actual song that they would perform for money. Tommy the cat and you have this fake band just like jumping around at the end. It's kind of like ironically dumb in a way. But I, I'm I'm such a huge fan that I just I can't help but like mark out every time at the end of the movie where it's like there they are just playing on stage randomly. Well, let me say that it is a real trade up when it comes to the soundtrack, like because I am not that big of a fan of a lot of the bands that are in the first movie soundtrack, but the second movie, I mean, again, going back to you know me working at the movie theater, having to go in and and clean the theater after every performance, having Kiss as that final song, fucking a, I just loved it, and it was so perfect that that was that song. If that isn't the one thing you and I always keep coming back to. <laughs> but yeah, that that was probably where my childhood love of Kiss started was, you know, this one soft ass song that they did. <laughs> that was probably my favorite my favorite song as a kid. It's it's such a good song. It also gave me a a a, a puzzle that I have yet to figure out, which is that's God gave rock and roll to you part 2. Where's part 1, Josh? That was by a different band from what I understand. It was a song that I want to say Gene or Paul might have heard. I don't know the whole story on it, but basically they bought the rights to it and then made their own version and called it a sequel. That's more or less the story on that one. I've never I've never looked up the original to see how that sounds, if that's even available. I love that Steve Vai, of all people, is the person that they would bring in to, uh, to do their music when they do their guitar solos. It, it is like the funniest shit ever, because like in the credits, it's like air guitar by Steve Vai. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? But like that guitar solo that he does that leads into God Gave Rock and Roll to You is amazing. As is the Reaper rap in the end credits. I will say, though, Mike, I do want to ask you, do you like two heads are better than one? What is that? What are you making a reference to? The song from the first movie by Power Tool. I love that song only because it's a song about two brothers like fucking chicks together. And it's just so random. Like if you listen to the words of the song, it is about a dude who makes a pact with his brother that they will never be with a woman unless they're having sex with her at the same time. The lyrics do say double the pleasure, triple the fun, double the fun. So now I know where the the triple comes from. (laughs) 
I would implore anyone who has ever watched the first movie to listen to the song outside of the movie because it is it is really 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 full of innuendo <laughs> like ton a ton of innuendo ton of like really like odd stuff to be talking about in a in a song from a movie that is again rated PG as far as the original movie the one song that always stuck with me was Extremes Play With Me which was just a cool classical riff that I didn't even realize was a real song until like 10 years later <laughs> after they had already lost it all on more than words. You mean gained it all? Because I will attest and defend that song as a good song. Oh, I love that song, but it's hard to deny that it, <laughs> but they lost yeah, all their it ended their career because they're called extreme. And then they do the softest song of all time. <laughs> You have to admit that having Kiss, having Steve Vai, having Faith No More, Megadeth, Primus, King's X, I mean, it's all well, yeah. pretty damn good. And definitely, for me, a trade-up from, um, I think, yeah, Extreme was on that first one. I want to say, like, somebody really weak, like a winger or somebody, is on that first soundtrack, and it's just like, ugh. I know that the guys that end I think Nelson might be who you're thinking of. I, I know that... They ended up doing a song on that soundtrack, I think, before they were actually Nelson. Yeah, that's 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 two heads are better than one by Power Tool. By Power Tool. Oh, that's the Power Tool? Oh, my God. That's why you can't find it under Power Tool, because it's it's not even... Yeah, it was a like, fake just, band. I don't even think it's attributed <laughs> to them anymore. Yeah. As much as I like uh, Two Heads Are Better Than One, which now is has been outed as a disturbingly disgusting and dirty song, I will agree 100%, Mike. It is a total trade-up just by having Faith No More in your movie. And then from there, I mean, yeah, Kiss, Slaughter. That was the thing that I always liked about Alex Winter is like focusing on cooler bands and cooler music and just like you know he was such a uh, he still holds a torch for uh, the butthole surfers oh i would kill to see the original version of freaked that was the butthole surfers movie it feels to me like and again this is this might be completely wrong i might be giving undue credit where undue credit is not needed i feel like Having Primus and having Faith No More connections was more of like an Alex Winter thing because I just I I think he's so fucking cool that it it just seems like yeah let's have these really cool bands in here that not at in '91 not that many people knew about at the time. Well, and you even have Jim Martin of Faith No More as Sir James Martin. That bit, I mean, again, like we've already mentioned, I didn't get that joke until I recently rewatched it. But like, yeah, it's that like there is that like level of cool, right? Like intrinsically this movie is just cool because it has fucking faith no more actually in it and their music and pre-men yeah the, the movie gets a lot of cred that way basically it feels real like the movie feels like it rocks <laughs> yeah and and like it helps when your movie is about rockers right like you don't want some like two-bit bullshit music in your movie where you're trying to sell these dudes as you know the god's gift to music i guess and to your earlier claim, Josh, you are completely right. Kiss bought the rights to God Gave Rock and Roll to you. It was originally done by a band called Argent, and then it was covered in 77 by Petra, and then in 91 by Kiss. That makes up for the fact that I think I was totally wrong about Biodome, and I was quoting like a 25-year-old rumor that I have just debunked while we were on the air. <laughs> it's more exciting that way. Yeah, it, it does make you feel better either way at the idea that I'm sure a lot of people had a lot of bad ideas for Bill and Ted movies that never got made regardless. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the fact that that 
fact doesn't even sound that far from being real is sad in and of itself. Because Pauly Shore is no Keanu Reeves, and he's really no Alex Winter. <laughs> as as much as I don't want to pile on Pauly Shore, because the dude gets enough bad rap as it is. I've got a story that could take a whole podcast about seeing him live a year or two ago. <laughs> I, I've seen him twice. The first time was good. The second time erupted in violence in the crowd. Pauly got the hell out of there real quick, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to save that for, for story time. It was insane. Local violence at the Pauly Shore concert. Headlines you never thought you would you Well, would it's see. Corpus Christi. I'm not really surprised. Keanu used to get, and I think it's used to, he used to get a lot more shit than he does these days. I think after like the success of John Wick and stuff, but people thought he was Ted Theodore Logan for whatever reason. And I think like his role in maybe like Parenthood, or what was the one um, with Tracy Ullman? I Love You to Death, I think it was. Like, those movies, and then, like, his horrible turn, along with everybody giving horrible performances in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but even going back to, like, when Excellent Adventure came out, like, Dangerous Liaisons, he's really good in that movie. And it's like, he would give you, like, he would give you a point break where he was like, whoa, like, surfer dude guy, and then he'd turn around and give you, like, a much ado about nothing. He has it, and it's just a matter of, like, getting into the roles where he can stretch a little bit. And so, I've always felt that he had it, and... um I would always go back and say, like, watch I Love You to Death. He's fucking fantastic in that movie. And that was near the beginning of his career. You know, like, uh, he was in River's Edge. He's fucking fantastic in that. I don't understand the, the hatred sometimes of him, and I'm glad that people are over that. Yeah, River's Edge was before this. My Own Private Idaho was, you know, a little bit after. Like, there was a lot of, of serious work in there. But, you know, that was never quite the stuff that broke through because nothing was as iconic as him saying, whoa, all the time. And I feel I feel like between pretty much, oh God, maybe between like Constantine to John Wick, he kind of laid low for a while and did a lot of smaller projects. And then when he reemerged as this unbelievably talented killing machine, everyone was like, maybe we were sleeping on this guy all this time. And I was right there behind him all the way. I don't know. Were we really sleeping on the day the Earth stood still, though? Come on now. We were all sleeping on it. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you. From 2005 to 2014, it's kind of a wasteland in Keanu's career. Except for a scanner darkly. But. Yeah, but he, he knew how to come back and when to do it. And I think he really found his groove with John Wick. And people can appreciate that because... Yeah, you you never would have, even after seeing The Matrix, you never would have imagined, like, the physical abilities that he is showing on screen now. You know, and he's in his 50s now, and he's doing things I wish I could do. And the funny thing about Keanu is, now the way he has had a career resurgence has allowed right. other people to do the same thing. You have people copying John Wick wholesale, uh, which you know, to varying degrees of success, none of them nearly as good as John Wick. Uh, it, it is it is funny, though, because he paved the way for this weird action star resurgence in your career that you could pull off like Bob Odenkirk is apparently doing. That looks way too good, too. <laughs> yeah, it does. It looks a lot better than the last movie I saw that was a John Wick ripoff, which was um, 
forget the title of the movie. I just know that it was the one with Charlize Theron. Oh, oh right. right. Atomic Blonde. Yeah, there is a Christian film with David A.R. White where he's basically being a John Wick character. You can't fool God. You can't cheat God. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. That person you were before, that person has to die. You are a good preacher and a good man. God will turn this around. You will see it. I know I'm not supposed to come here. I'm in trouble. What's your name? Tabitha. This is new for both of us. But the thing I like about Keanu, you know, I was I was talking, and again, I'm talking out of my ass. I don't know if Alex Winter is the guy who is like, try to get in Primus and, and Faith No More into this movie. But I know for sure that Keanu is a guy who gives back, like, Man of Tai Chi, the, the main guy in there, was somebody that he had worked with before. Tiger Chen, the guy who was his uh, stunt coordinator on the Matrix. And then also going back to the Matrix, I think this some of the stunt guys are the guys that directed John Wick, and they have had huge careers since then. So it's like, this is wonderful. Like, he is able to now take his stardom and actually, like, give back to other people. Don't forget, he also narrated the Deep Web documentary that Alex Winter directed. I don't think we can speak highly enough of Keanu Reeves, but he is one of the few people in the world that, like, I would genuinely love to just sit down and talk to. I know everyone's like, oh, I want to share a beer with this person. Like, I would love to just pick Keanu's brain because he seems like a genuine human being to his core, which in this industry is it's it's unheard of. It's 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 very uncommon to find someone who is as genuine as he seems to be. What do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? <laughs> I know that the ones who love us will miss us. Yeah, I will say my favorite Keanu interview related moment ever. If you've never seen it, there's a video of him on I think it was a Japanese talk show and unbeknownst to him they uh, brought out Sonny Chiba, who is one of his heroes. And to see, you know, somebody that we consider as big as Keanu turning into just a small, excited child in the presence of a legend is one of the most beautiful videos you can ever see. It's so good. If you guys can't tell, we love Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you couldn't, right, at this point. Uh, aside from the fact if you're someone who played Cyberpunk 2077, and I hope to God that his involvement with that mess doesn't sour his goodwill with, I think, the community at large. He's done nothing wrong in that game from what everyone has told me. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not his. Well, he was added more into it, which is unfortunate. But yeah, it's everything about Keanu seems real. And that's just weird in the in the world of Hollywood. So let's go ahead and we're going to take another break and we're going to play an interview with the Grim Reaper himself, William Sadler. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. This podcast is an amazing resource and one that helps in the discovery or rediscovery of films for anyone who enjoys thinking about cinema. If you love movies and podcasts, subscribe and enjoy The Projection Booth. Every episode is beautifully crafted to give you a true audio experience. 
a wonderful companion to the films they cover. The projection booth is awesome. A wide range of films covered from classic to cult to contemporary. Thoroughly researched, very entertaining, and always informative. Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. I have been a fan of yours since uh, Die Hard 2, and you definitely made an impression in that movie, especially the naked Tai Chi. (laughs) It's a pretty startling way to introduce a character, I thought. It wasn't my idea, but it was it was in the script. I mean, it was he actually it wasn't in the script either. It was a man doing Tai Chi in a hotel room in the script. But um, I went to the um, costume fitting for it with the director, Rennie Harlan, and we tried on everything. (laughs) We tried on all the other costumes that he wears in the show and we finished. And I said, what? We're missing one. What's, What's he wearing in the hotel room scene doing Tai Chi? And when he said in his Finnish accent, he said, well, Bill, I was thinking it would be nude. And, <laughs> and I didn't, if, I, if, if, it, if I'd been savvier about the business, I suppose I would have gone back to my agents and said, get some more money out of these people. They want me to be nude. But I said, yeah, sure. Just push it off to the end of the movie. Um, just give me some time and get me a trainer. Get me into a gym and and uh, I'll see what I can do for you. So that's how it happened. But at the end of the day, I thought that's a pretty alarming way to meet a new character. A new character, you know, he's naked and having a fight with invisible people in a hotel room. I mean, you have no idea what's going on, but it can't be good. I'm always curious about actors and their methods of getting into a character. When you come to a character like a Stuart, like a Senator Vernon, are you writing a, a history of these guys or how are you coming up with the internal life of these characters? I used to actually sit down and write, write out the characters, you know, make up a biography, make up a history, but this sort of became a shorthand for it. I look for things in myself that I recognize in the character because you're the raw material, you know, you're the box of paint to create this guy out of. And I have enough colors to find just about any combination. You put yourself in their shoes and imagine yourself in that situation. Try to feel how that would feel. Try to feel what's going on in that character's mind at that moment. You know, how scared are they or how angry are they Let yourself go there. Let yourself be that. It's hard to be precise about how I go about it, but it seems to have been working. Well, how do you prepare for a role like death? (laughs) Death was a, well, even death is is a, you know, he has all of the petty vanity that I have, you know, it's just kind of exaggerated. Death started with the voice. I did a play at the public theater back in the 80s called New Jerusalem. And one of the actors in it was a, one, this wonderful Czechoslovakian actor named Jan Triska. He's dead now, but he's from, but he was from Czechoslovakia and he had this, he had this wonderful way of talking everything was, <laughs> everything came out in this funny cadence of this, strange accents on things. And I just thought it was, I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was, uh, I began to imitate it. And when I put, when I did it myself, 
this character, when, when I read the Bill and Ted script, Bogus Journey script, it seemed to fit perfectly, you know, this for the role of Dad. So I used it in the audition, which was a good thing because uh, the, the casting woman, Karen Ray, I put myself on tape at Orion back in 1990, uh, auditioning for this thing. And it was funny. The audition went well. And about three weeks later, I got a, I didn't hear anything. Um, and I got a phone call from Karen Ray, the casting director, saying, um, they want you to come back. Uh, you have to come back in and do it again, but I want you to go to a Halloween store and buy some gray to put in your hair and like black out your teeth or something because you're too young to play death. They want, you know, they're looking for, they were looking at like Christopher Lee from the old Hammer movies. You know, they wanted him to look like, a, you know, he's a million years old and um, scary. So, and I thought, well, the Halloween store route is going to look terrible. So I, I called up the makeup man from Die Hard 2, which I had just done. And I told him my situation. He just said, come on over to my house. I'll, I'll do a makeup on you quick the morning of the audition, which was the following morning. And so I was sitting in his kitchen in Marina Del Rey at seven in the morning, and he made me look about 70 or 80 years old, but kind of believably. And I got in my car and drove to Orion and did the audition again with the same accent, with everything was the same. And uh, <laughs> and I got the role. And the but the and the of course the, of course the irony is that when we actually shot the movie, they didn't. There was no attempt made to make him a thousand years old. He was you know just a white sort of skull head. The Reaper was a He's, he's a really fun character to play because he starts out being this terrifying figure, genuinely scary. When Bill and Ted meet him, they've been murdered, and there, there he is, this this image of death that we've all grown up with. And then he's then when he starts to lose at at all the games, he just he just comes unwound. He comes unglued. And he becomes petulant. He becomes petulant and he becomes, you know, he's like this spoiled little brat who's never lost a game and cheats. <laughs> all, of this, all of these really human traits start popping out. And I thought, you know, until by, by the end, he's just this, he's like the kid who wants to be in the band with you, you know. I know you had been in a lot of sitcoms up to this point. But I'm curious, had you played comedy as broad as this ever before in a movie? No, not in a movie. I never, I never had. Maybe I had done Roseanne by that time. I did a lot of theater coming up before I ever did my first movie. I spent like 11 years in the city, in New York City, doing and six years of training before that. And the, la the last couple of years in New York was in a comedy. It was on Broadway in Biloxi Blues as the crazy Southern drill sergeant Merwin J. Toomey. I had done lots and lots of comedy on stage, but the minute I got to Hollywood, I was the villain. You know, they took one look at me and said, you know, he could murder everybody in the room. Look at that. I would go to auditions and 
feedback coming back would be he's he's edgy he's really edgy I'm, I'm sure it was just nerves when i got a chance to be funny i grabbed it it always has to be good to work but how did you feel inside when you kept ge- being cast as these villain roles i had tried to i've been trying to break into los angeles for some time and so any job is a job and these were pretty good jobs. These, you know, you know, if you can't be James Bond, it's good to be Dr. No. So these were following Alan Rickman's villain in Die Hard. And the second Die Hard was a, that was a huge gig for me. And it put me on the map in a way that was terrific. It helped my career enormously because people felt comfortable offering me jobs after that it was like you become a you're an established quantity but the problem was that it, they were all sort of <laughs> they, they were all sort of murderous killer types and uh, which you know it, it's fine i like i say villains are fun to play as well one of your early uh, film roles that i really appreciated was um trespass i thought you were terrific in that and i thought it was such a, a great tense movie oh, thank you Thank you. I don't see it playing on TV very much. I would have thought with Ice Cube and Ice T in it and Bill Paxton and myself, it would have had a life after the movie theaters. Yeah, that was a good, that was Walter Hill directed, wrote and directed that or did some of the writing in it. That was great fun to shoot. The character I played wasn't a villain. He wasn't, he's not a bad man. He just becomes obsessed with getting the gold. It's sort of a modern-day take on uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And my character is like the Bogart character, just gets starts getting cr- crazy about the gold, and it ends up costing him his, uh, you know, his life. But yeah, that was a, I enjoyed working with Walter and Bill Paxton and the guys. It came out during the L.A. riots. The original title was Looters. It couldn't come out with the name Looters. There was politics going on at the time that, you know, it, the studio didn't get behind it quite the way they, they might have. But still, I think it's a true. I'm glad you like brought that up. I like that film. And I loved working with Walter, Walter Hill. He did the first Tales from the Crypt episode that I did, the, the man who was, which really put me on the map. That, that particular episode, because it was before Die Hard 2. Joel Silver was one of the executive producers on that show. And it was Walter Hill and Joel Silver and Bob Zemeckis and Dick Donner. It was sort of all of these, all of these big guns were on board. Uh, Bob Gale. I had this wonderful character who talked right to the camera and had a sort of a wry sense of humor about executing people. And it was just like, it was sort of tailor-made for me. But one of the writers on the show who I met through that episode was Frank Darabont, who went on to do the Shawshank Redemption, and uh, Green Mile, and The Mist, and used me again and again and again. After that episode, I did Die Hard 2 with Joel Silver, and then Trespass with Walter, and then Shawshank with Frank Darabont. It was it was a turning point for me. You were talking about being a villain, and you are talking about being funny, and I love that you can be both of those things and Freaked. And I'm curious, did Alex <laughs> write the role with you in mind? Because you are perfect in that. 
I don't know whether he wrote it with me in mind. He wrote it with a great sense of humor. He wrote a gigantically evil, corporate evil dude. Um, I don't know that he wrote it with me in mind. He, After Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, he asked me if I would do that, come be in this movie. And well, then I never thought of that. Maybe he, Maybe he had me in mind. That's another movie that's gone on to become that sort of has had a, a cult following since it came out, I think. I would love to see that released again. Your line about standing knee-deep in the blood of their children is probably still one of my favorite lines from that. I thank you, Michael. Looking through your filmography, I'm trying to see, because I know you've been, obviously, in sequels, Die Hard 2, Iron Man 3, but have you ever played the same character in more than one film apart from playing the Grim Reaper? I don't think so. I don't think I've ever repeated a character. No, I don't think that's ever happened. How was that revisiting death? That was great fun. Um, I mean, I'm much older now. I forgot how much energy it took to be that big. And where I wear those robes and the makeup and the shoes. And I wear these shoes that make me like six foot five or something. So that I could tower over Keanu and be this evil, threatening dude, you know. But they're huge. I mean, they're really huge uh, and hard to walk in. But but putting the character back on after all this time was, was, was truly easy. Once the makeup was on and the robes were there, and I locked on to the Czechoslovakian accent again. He just popped out like I'd been carrying him around in my pocket for... He he just popped out fully formed, like he'd been waiting there all this time to to get out. It must have been nice working with some of the same faces that you had worked with, what, 30, 20 years beforehand? 30 years beforehand. 29 years before, I think, something like almost 30 years ago. Yeah, and the weird thing was, I, you know, everybody's older. Everybody had, everybody had, time had passed for everyone. But when we hit the stage. The minute we were together in the scene on the sound stage down in New Orleans, the time just evaporated. It was as if working with Alex and Keanu, it was as if no time had passed at all. It was like we'd finished Bogus Journey yesterday and we just picked up the conversation exactly where we left off when they when they fired me from the band, you know, or what <laughs> spoiler alert, um so all of the, you know, the anger and the petulance and the vanity, his, his bruised ego is totally bruised when we meet him. Yeah, no, it was great. It was great fun. And it was and it did feel like we, you know, we just picked up right where we left off. It was fun. I was worried. actually. I was a little concerned that it was. Well, I think everybody was a little, you know, I was like, oh, is this going to. Is the chemistry going to be there? Is the is the energy going to be there? Is it? Or, and expectations were so high. People, as soon as it was announced that we were doing it, it was like the Twitter sphere just went completely crazy with expectations. Oh my God! I can't wait! I can't wait! I can't wait! And you know that was a little daunting. You know, if you if you expect the second coming, it's you know it's hard to. You know, it's easy to fall short of something that, that has that kind of expectations, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I'm glad that um, I'm glad that it was there, that 
all the love and all the the good vibes and the. Mm-hmm. I think it worked. I think it worked. I think it worked really well for the for the audiences that have seen it. It's such a feel good movie, and especially at this time, to come out with a feel good movie was such a breath of fresh air. It's remarkable, isn't it? The country is just reeling from one, you know, one body blow after another after another. I guess we finished in August of 2019, so there there was no COVID. No one had died from it. You know, it really was the before times. But boy, did people need a laugh and a, a hopeful message that, you know. I know with Bogus Journey, there was a lot of stuff that was shot that didn't end up coming out. Like the there was a another fight with the Easter Bunny, and um, then there was more to do with the I think the robots um, on stage. Were there things that were shot for Face the Music that you were part of that didn't end up on screen? I don't think so. I think Face the Music was no. I think every I think every inch that we shot of, of me anyway of the Reaper anyway, ended up in the movie. It was, a, it was on a different budget. It was a different, they were, you know, racing to get everything shot in a very short time in New Orleans. A hurricane shut them down for a little bit. You know, they were on a very, very tight schedule and a tight budget. So it was, there, there wasn't any, I don't think there were any, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think there was anything shot that didn't get, that wasn't essential and got in the movie. How is it being both Mitch McConnell and Michael Flynn these days? <laughs> I, uh, I, well, it's really fun to, to do. To, Mike, you mean Michael Flynn in the... Um, the Comey rule? The upcoming Comey rule. Yeah, I guess I'm still playing... Evildoers. <laughs> no, I don't know. It, it depends on you know. That I love that I'm being asked to do topical things, important. You know, the cartoon president thing is really fun. You have to be able to laugh at these politicians. You have to be able to make fun of politicians of of any stripe. I mean, that's just. That's a tradition in the country. You have to be able to laugh at yourselves and poke fun at these people when they're being ridiculous. And the Mike Flynn thing, I, <laughs> I uh, it was great. Fun. It, it was really fun to shoot, to, to try to get in, put myself in his shoes a little bit. I'm curious to see how his story ends. It's it, it doesn't every week. There seems to be another chapter about whether he's going to prison or not. I'm not, I'm not even sure where they are right now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I'm, I like playing <laughs> people in the news. You have such a, a wonderful voice. I know that you've done the voice for, um, our cartoon president. Have you done much voice work on top of that? Not really. I did, I played a character in, the um, New Vegas, the video game. What it's called, New Vegas. Yeah, I'm I'm so not a gamer. I, I, I get too addicted to those things. I'm totally not a gamer, but they asked me to play the cowboy, the robot. There's a robotic cowboy who. <laughs> anyway, I did. I've done a bit of voice work, but not as much as I'd like to. I enjoy it. It's you know, it's easy and it's fun. What I'm finding now, as I get older, is that all of it's fun. That I'm pl- I'm more playful now 
with the roles, with the, with the words, with my body, with what I can, <laughs> what there is left of my body. I'm more playful now. I just have more fun now. I'm freer now than I ever was as an actor. I'm not sure why that is, but when I was younger, I used to fuss and fret and worry and get angry at myself and nothing's ever good enough. Not, you know, I worry about the way I look and the way I was coming across. And now it's, it's so much easier. It's, um, and I think the work is better. You know, honestly, I think, I think the, the amount of human that gets into the characters now is enormous, uh, which is a good thing. These days with COVID going on, are you able to work on anything? I was shooting a movie for Screen Gems called Shrine that back in March and, and it had to be suspended, but we're going back. They figured out, they figured out how to keep every, they rewrote sections of it so that people, you know, there are no crowd scenes anymore. So I go back in a couple of weeks. I'll finish shooting that in Boston. Part of what makes that possible is that I can drive to the location. They've bought an entire floor of a hotel so that no one else can go in. And everybody involved in the show that comes near the actors is tested three times a week. It's people, yeah, it's, they've gone to tremendous lengths to keep everybody safe so that they can do this filming and not have to shut down again. Um, or, you know, or not get anybody sick. I'm, I'm one of those people that shouldn't. Um, I mean, no one should catch this thing, but it, w- it really wouldn't be a good thing f- for me at this stage of my life. I have some underlying uh, conditions, so I'm not getting on planes to go, you know, fly to Los Angeles and shoot for a few days. Or I'm looking for the things that film in and around New York or within, you know, within driving distance so um, I can keep myself reasonably isolated. Uh, it's changing, but I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to. I can't wait to see what all these protocols do to the filming. Like they like they, I play a priest, and there's scenes where he's talking to the whole congregation, and apparently they're going to shoot. You know, they'll shoot me talking to an empty church, and then they'll when I'm not there, they'll turn around and start filling in the church and with people spaced safely, put more people in another shot spaced safely and then more people in another shot spaced safely and when they combine the films they can make it look like a, a crowded I, I don't know I've got to help me with this technology I've I finally threw my hands up and said you know you got it. it's just magic what they can do um, just work your magic and keep me safe there's no movie that's worth bringing it home and giving it to my wife or I read a rumor that you might be playing Criswell in a movie about Ed Wood. Is that true? Wow. I have not heard this rumor. Oh, that's a Where new did one, you huh? read it? Uh, it's no. one of those horrible IMDb things. Really? In a movie about Ed Wood? Something called The Final Curtain, The Last Days of Ed Wood Jr. And you're listed as Criswell. I, I thought that would be a lot of fun uh, because Criswell was such a kook. Well, I'll have to look into that. I don't have, uh, I don't know. I don't recall ever. <laughs> it's not high on my radar yet. So, uh, I'll have to look into that, Mike. Well, Mr. Sadler, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Oh, the other thing that I'm doing these days is I have a, I started a YouTube channel. It's just called William Sadler, The Kitchen Tapes. And um, people are welcome to stop by. I, I, I write songs and I sing them and I talk about the movies and, you know, sort of war stories from the theater and the movies over the years. So and it, it's, it's fun for me and I think it'll be fun for, fun for people. Well, great. I will go over and subscribe and I'll make sure that uh, people are aware of this. Thank you so much for, for letting me know about that. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. 25 years ago, you played a concert in front of the entire world. One month ago, you played in Barso, California for 40 people, most of whom were there for $2 taco night. Bill and Ted, what have you got to say for yourselves? Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. We're supposed to unite the world and save reality as we know it. Bill, we've spent our whole life trying to write the song that will unite the world. Why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? Whoa! And take it from ourselves! But isn't that stealing? How is that stealing if we're stealing it from ourselves, dude? How'd you like our song? It's a little on the dark side, but you know, that's cool. All right, we are back and we are talking about the Bill and Ted trilogy and 2020 as fucked up and weird batshit crazy as 2020 was. Either one of the strangest or one of the best things to come out of 2020 was just this unexpected release of Bill and Ted Face the Music, a sequel that I never thought was actually going to happen, and then it happens in the middle of the pandemic. I was shocked, and I think, Chris, you liked this one a lot more than I did when it first came out. When it first came out. The fact that this movie exists is insane. The fact that this movie existed during a year where literally nothing came out in theaters. If you went to the movie theaters, uh, go fuck yourself. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. But you could watch anything. Tom Cruise would want to have a word with you, sir. <laughs> yeah, Tom Cruise went and saw Tenant, guys. Uh, cool. Um, look, at the end of the day, I think to answer your question, Mike, which seemed to be rhetorical, but I'm going to answer it. It is both. It's insane that it came out, but it's amazing at the same time. I like it. It's the least, you know, watching all three of them, it's my least favorite of the three. But I think the three of us, if we can agree on anything about this third movie, and I think we'll probably disagree about this one more than anything else. The fact that it came out and it's good is shocking. Like that it actually almost can recapture the joy of the first two movies is shocking to me. Because this never happens with sequels that have, lang that have languished in development hell for decades. Them being successful rarely happens. I mean, look at Anchorman 2. Look at 
comedy. I mean, I'm trying to think of some other movies that came out long after their previous films. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones once, possibly twice. I mean, it's happened with Star Wars twice. Couldn't you say, though, with Star Wars, it's been technically six times? <laughs> six separate occasions of failing horribly yeah. each time. But I'm thinking of just like the two subsequent trilogy generations. Oh, I know, but those are six different occasions. <laughs> I know I was in theaters uh, at least four of those six times. Josh, what did you think of, the, of Bill and Ted Face the Music? For me, Bill and Ted, that was my big thing as a kid. The way everyone got excited when, you know, they announced Star Wars Episode One, and then again, Episode 7. You know, the, the way that that excitement was in everyone else. That's how I felt when I heard that Bill and Ted were finally back. I, I was like, this is my series. I'm going to get to see my heroes finally do the thing that they said they would always do. <laughs> and that's that's a tall order when you think about it. And considering that the movie obviously did not have... Like, you can tell that they, they had to cut some corners and word is that they had to cut, you know, things out of the script here and there. And you can kind of see that. At the end of the day, they captured that same sweet, non-cynical nature of those first two movies in a way that just warmed my heart. And I was very, very happy with it. In a year that needed one good thing, that was kind of the one good thing we got. What about you, Mike? What did you think? I went back and I rewatched this one over the weekend, and I think I actually liked it more the second time than I did the first time. The first time I was, I didn't mind it, but I was just, I kept asking myself questions and I wasn't getting any sort of good answers. My biggest issue was Bill and Ted's wives and just like, what is going on with the wives? Because there's basically, there's three main stories happening in this. There's the story of Bill and Ted who are going into the future and trying to steal this song that's going to save humanity from themselves. Then there's the second story, which is their daughters who are going back in time and grabbing all these musicians and kind of coming up with this ultimate band that is going to actually save the world. And then there's the story of the wives and we keep seeing the wives, but we don't know what the fuck is going on with them. And it just felt like there was a huge thing that was left on the cutting room floor. And uh, when I watched it the second time, I was just like, you know what? Who gives a shit? It's, it's, it's a, it's an error that this is happening and we don't know what's going on with this. And maybe there's going to be some deleted scenes or something, or maybe to your point, Josh, that stuff that was shot or couldn't get shot because of the pandemic. So I'm just going to have to get over it. I do like knowing that they had planned on revisiting the first movie at some point in the third movie, and they were unable to due to financial reasons, because like you just said, Mike, to your point, there may be a version of this that we get at some point where they go back and do those things. I'm not saying that that's like the new normal given the state of things like, you know, the DC Snyder cut or anything. But I think because of the pandemic, we're going to see things getting retroactively fixed and changed to be what the creators wanted. Because, I mean, this isn't the only thing that happened in the pandemic that was changed. You know, Supernatural came out and they have admittedly said multiple times that the way that show ended wasn't the way they wanted to end it completely because, again, also because of COVID and other reasons, they had to make choices that they may not have made otherwise. I think we're going to see a lot of things 
after, you know, long after the fact that do retroactively change the problems or the shortcomings or failings of, you know, things being left out on the cutting room floor or not even being able to be filmed at all. It is remarkable to go back to an early draft of the script from 2012 and to read that and compare that with what we got in 2020 and to see just how similar those two things are. It's still Little Bill and Little Ted, and they take uh, the, the, the future people, who basically it's Rollins, so obviously going to be played by Henry Rollins. Rollins is Rufus's son, <laughs> and Rollins takes the princesses and the, the sons back to 1404 or whenever that is, when the princesses are from, and put them with their family with the the princess's uh parents basically and they are just out of the narrative from right around the beginning of the second act all the way until the third act so the entire second act is the going forward in time and trying to steal the song from themselves which gets a little repetitive i have to say with some of this stuff but it is interesting the way that we have them as losers them as losers but they're pretending that they're big shots and it was interesting in this in the 2012 draft it was eddie van halen's house that they were in not dave grohl's house and i think they were supposed to actually shoot with eddie van halen but either he was not well enough or just schedules didn't work out so having dave grohl was an interesting choice i i like that and then the um going in and having themselves in prison i thought was good and then there was a fourth moment where they actually went back in time and saw themselves as 10 year olds and basically scared the shit out of themselves as 10 year olds by like, you need to come up with a solution for this song. We're giving you another 30 years to think about this. <laughs> you need to come up with this. Of all things, that reminds me of Hot Tub Time Machine <laughs> when Craig Robinson calls his like eight year old wife in the 80s and just scares the hell out of her. And the dad picks up the phone. This had nothing to do with you. Get off the phone. And then it is interesting <laughs> because they start to actually remember that they had that visit, but it did. It was like so traumatic that they blocked it out. But then they start doing things or things will happen. Kind of like that police station scene from the first movie where it's like, oh, we must have been thinking about this for an extra 30 years. Oh, we had this already planned. So that was kind of an, an interesting turn. And then time starts to fall apart, kind of like it does in Face the Music. And eventually, like, it's time collapsing from either end of itself and it somehow starts to meet in the 1400s. So then they end up going going back to the 1400s and their wives and kids are going to be hanged as witches and eventually they're about to be hanged as witches and then they end up coming up with the solution that's going to save everything so it, it was interesting it was very similar the other thing that was uh, not there in the version that we saw that was in the earlier one is rather than it being the kids who are sent to hell it's actually the father and um so it's it's Ted's father and Deacon who are cops at this point and we kind of see them in that we see the father in that uh Foo Fighters the, the Dave Grohl scene 
And that, they, like, they get zapped into the time tunnels, and they end up going to heaven, then they end up going to hell, and uh, death helps them out, and then they're the ones that help out Bill and Ted when they're in the 1400s. So they had a lot more to do, but we just kind of replaced them with the daughters. But that really speaks to just how much can change over the drafting process to tell the exact same story in a completely different manner. And again, I mean, this... From all accounts, this script has been kicked around, and they've been talking about doing this movie since, like, 2000. And unlike a lot of other creators, you believe Solomon and Matheson when they say that they've been planning to make this movie the whole time. It's not, you know, it's not a George Lucas thing where he's like, sure, I was going to make this story the whole time. Then he just farts out a three-movie script over a weekend. (laughs) Well, I really want to go back and uh, make art films like my early work, 16, 29, 54. Mike, haven't you beaten up on George Lucas enough? He can handle it. He's a big boy. He, he And he did give me the Monkey Island games, so, you know, I'm not going to crap too hard on him, but he's kind of an easy target. And to be fair, he has more zeros in his bank account than anyone in this call will ever likely have, so, yeah, he's going to be good. And this is something, you know, we mentioned the Reaper rap in the last movie, and it wasn't there in this movie, and I'm thankful for it. I'm only going to say it because they say it in the second movie. I'm glad that they don't say fags in this movie. Yeah. Uh, that's- it, like, as much as you guys like the Reaper rap, they said fags in that, too. Look, I'm not going to pull, because I know Mike likes to give me a hard time about it. Like, it didn't offend me as someone who's bisexual. It just was like, I didn't even remember it being in the it's, movie. It's the only thing from those first two movies that just doesn't fit. Because it doesn't really fit their nature. It's not... Well, to be fair, it is the it is the evil us. Oh, not in the first one. They said so, it like, in the first movie when they hugged in after the... Uh, oh, right, in, yeah. In the medieval times. And they also called uh, Satan one, which I guess he can handle it. He's a big boy. Winters and Reeves have both said that, like, they're, they're thankful that that is not in the movies. But yeah, holy shit. Like, I didn't really remember it in that second movie or the first movie. And when I heard it, I was like, yeah, this is the one thing that I'm just like, man, I didn't remember this. And I'm glad that it did not carry over at all. Yeah, it's it's weird. And and to the point of progressiveness, uh, I kind of appreciate that not just with the new Bill and Ted, but also John Wick 3. Keanu Reeves did two major movies in a row where one of the leads, it was Asia Kate Dillon in uh, John Wick 3 and Bridget Lundy Payne. And this are both openly non-binary, which... That's not a thing you see anymore, and that's, I can, you know, I fall under the same, the same leaf of non-binary, so it, 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 it's a little bit of representation that you're just not really getting anywhere yet, and he's done it with two movies in a row, which is just so cool to me. It's nice to see representation in films where it's not, I hate to say this, it's not the Star Wars Disney way of doing it, where it's just like, here they are, like, no, that's fucking bullshit, the fact that you had a characters kissing in the background of star wars barely you don't deserve applause for that you don't deserve applause for josh gad's character in beauty and the beast actually being written gay as opposed to coded as gay you don't get any credit for that because you're not actually embracing it you're just doing it because that's what you think people want to hear and that's not okay and in something like this it's great like i like you said josh i'm glad that they're embracing it without beating us over the head with it because they're not making characters that fit that guideline it's casting people who are that person that's that's just how it works you know <laughs> people exist put them in your movies it it didn't feel like stunt casting it didn't feel, they didn't have to like take a break and be like oh 
Ted, your daughter. Well, you know. <laughs> it was just like, okay, cool. It's pretty nice. And I, I liked also that they switched them from being the sons to the daughters. And, you know, yay, girl power having that actually in the movie. I was like, that's pretty cool. And that they are, they're the real musicians. You know, Bill and Ted never fucking learned how to play their shit right. And they make these horrible songs. I mean, maybe those first couple albums after they did go into the future and took all these guitar lessons and stuff, maybe those those songs that they created that we see charting, like maybe those were good. But by the time we see them playing Deacon's Wedding with Missy, it's like, <laughs> oh, God, this is just terrible stuff. But they go for it. And I, again, you can't hate these guys. You cannot look down on these guys. They're trying their best. Some people would be like, these guys are losers. But it's like, no, they are so determined. And again, they've been given this super heavy burden of, you're going to be the ones that write this song that unite humanity. And here's a ticking clock. You need to do it by this time. And it's like, what else are these guys going to do? I do love that the name of the song that they end up quote unquote writing is that which binds us through time, the chemical, physical and biological nature of love, semicolon and exploration of the meaning of meaning part one. (laughs) It is again, one of those jokes that wouldn't work in most things, but it works in this movie because of how genuine and sincere the characters are. And speaking of the ticking clock thing, I really appreciate it's, I mean, it's the thing that never happens in movies, but this is the rare movie where they give you a ticking clock, and that's the exact runtime of the rest of the movie. And, and that's that's such a, like, it's such a rare thing. Usually, you'll have, like, a five-minute countdown, and you'll have 30 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> it's funny, because I've seen Christian Shawl and other things, but I was when I was re-watching the movie uh, yesterday, I was just like... I normally don't hear the Louise and her voice that much when she's in other things, but she was just like spot on Louising the entire time. It, what's funny is I have never seen Kristen Shaw compared physically to George Carlin, but it works. Like she, she does kind of look like George Carlin in a way. And it, it, like, and if you look at Carlin's daughter, Kelly, who the character's name is based off of, obviously she looks a lot like George Carlin. I got very excited when, when they said her name and I was like, oh. <laughs> but like Christian Shaw, like oddly does kind of look like George Carlin in a way that like I can't unsee now. Obviously she sounds nothing like it. I didn't even think to make the comparison. <laughs> See, I was too busy because not, not to, not anything against her, but usually she's, a comedian, but her character is one of the more straight characters in the movie, which I thought it was kind of odd that they, they did cast somebody who's known for playing really wacky, weird characters as, as one of the less wacky characters in the movie. Uh, especially like I go all the way back to flight of the Concords with her, where she was psychotic. <laughs> so seeing her play normal is, it, it, it almost threw me for a loop. I have to say the one character that wasn't in that 2012 draft and I wish hadn't been in the 2020 draft is the robot. Dan- Dennis Caleb McCoy. I just did not appreciate that character. And especially when he quote unquote gains his humanity, I was just not into that character. I don't hate Dennis, but I feel like the joke goes on a little too long. Yes. It feels like something out of like a Judd Apatow movie, like an improv character who keeps popping up that, that doesn't quite mesh with the tone of the rest of the movie. 
But by the the point in the movie where that happens, I, I was relatively well on board enough that I was kind of okay with it. The first time I watched the film, I liked that character, but now I'm more in your camp, Mike. What the character to me seems like is they were trying to recapture the magic of death and give Bill and Ted, the girl versions, Thea and Billy, their own death character to go mm-hmm. around with. But as good as Anthony Kerrigan is in Barry, the writing on that show is smarter than this one's writing is for his character. And like you said, Mike, it's just not that well thought out. It's and it almost to your point, Josh, is a joke that goes on way too long. It is in the movie more than it needs to be. I was glad that their therapist, um, I can't remember that actress's name, uh, is it Jillian Bell? Yes. That she isn't given the latitude that she is given in some movies, because there are times where, again, she appears in Judd Apatow-ish movies, where it's like, okay, you're kind of funny, but you're not nearly as funny as I think you think you are. Like, her in 22 Jump Street, I was just like, wow, a little bit of you goes a long way. And I'm glad she pretty much plays it straight in this movie. I did not need her riffing. Jillian Bell, uh, I I don't find her funny. Uh, I watched Godmothered on Disney+. Plus. Uh, <laughs> um, well, like, she's the main, she's like the main character in the movie. Yeah, that says it all. If you're not into her comedic style, which is, like you guys have mentioned, Judd Apatow, sarcastic and cynical, cool, but like, mm-mm. nope, I'm with you. I'm with you, Mike. Mm-mm. I liked her on the show Workaholics. That, I thought she fit very well. She was kind of the same character, almost identical to Pam from Archer. That kind of weird character that didn't quite do what you were expecting her to do at first. Like, she worked there, but yeah, when when they've sort of let her off the chain and other things, it doesn't work as much. So her playing kind of reserved and straight here worked a lot better than I had anticipated. I know I was watching with my mom, and my mom hates her. <laughs> so as soon as she came on the screen, my mom audibly groaned, and I was like, just, just wait a second. It's Bill and Ted. <laughs> it can't be all bad. I think my issue is, like, when I see someone an actor like her injected into a film like this, it makes me remember that this movie did come out in 2020 because it's like, Oh God, you, uh, you know, well-known comedic actor now in 2020 is being injected into Bill and Ted. Uh Oh, that's fair. And, and when it feels it, it, not quite stunt casting, but definitely like we're putting a comedian in this comedy. There was that stretch all through the two thousands where damn near every comedy that came out, had an uncredited appearance from Will Ferrell, and for me, it always just dragged the movie down. Mom, the fucking meatloaf. <laughs> exactly. You mean that wasn't your favorite I, part of oh, Winning Crashers? No, that was where it went downhill for me. Uh, yeah, 100% with you on that one. And speaking of comedians who I like so much, Erin Hayes, I love her, and Jamma yes. Mays, I like her a lot as well, and they're just wasted in this movie. Erin Hayes is amazing in Kitchen Confidential, a TV show that almost no one knows existed because Fox did a good job at making sure no one did. She's amazing in that. She's amazing in this. And uh, now we get to go on our soapbox. The female characters in this film, namely the princesses are completely worthless. And it is a fucking shame because they had the opportunity to finally tell their story in this film. And they didn't again in the back of my mind. I was like, maybe they did something cool and filmed like 
you know, an extra mini movie with the princesses so we could see what they're going through. Because that would have been kind of nice. That would have been like an extra feature from DVDs in 2005 when they cared about them. But <laughs> that would have been really cool. And I'm sure, you know, we'll never see anything like that. But the fact that the opportunity was there and they didn't really capitalize on it is kind of a bummer. Yeah, because... They have to be living a really shitty life, having these two husbands that have kind of steadily gone downhill. Like, when they met them, it was like, oh, wow, these guys are time travelers. This is pretty cool. They end up doing this Battle of the Bands. They win this. It seems like they're really, you know, going places. Then they end up failing over and over and over again. It feels like these two probably would have had to have gone out and become the breadwinners for the family. Yeah, maybe tell the story from their point of view rather than Bill and Ted's. You know, like we kind of get it with the daughters, but it's like I would like almost this to be the wives' story or at least just have that kind of stuff. And then by having them show up consistently where Bill and Ted are, I kept expecting something like their older selves talking to them about like, see what losers these guys are or something, but we just never get that. And so it's just, it, to your point, Chris, it's a wasted opportunity, but it's just like the same kind of wasted thing that we've had for basically all three of these films. And it just is like, come on, like, yeah, by this time we should be paying a little bit more attention to these characters and maybe we shouldn't have recast them every single time, unless that's kind of a, like a weird joke that we never get the same actress to play the same character twice. It's a missed opportunity because like you just said, they recast them with actresses who are comedic. Why did you go through all that trouble? Why even have them in the movie at all? The first movie, they're barely in it, but the second one, you know, whether they do enough with them or not, they're in that movie a lot more, you know, by the end of that second movie, we've had, you know, considerably more recognizable portrayals of those characters and then by the third movie, it's like, okay, we're starting over again. When you mentioned that they were probably the, you know, the breadwinners and stuff, I didn't even think about that at first, but they're living in, you know, the heart of pleasant suburbia, you know, at the start of the movie. Like, they're they're clearly doing well, despite the fact that the guys have not gotten jobs and haven't, you know, played a profitable show in probably 15 years, at least. So, yeah, I do wonder what they've been doing with all their time. One of the things I don't understand in this movie is it, it somewhat, and correct me if I'm wrong here, does it ignore the end of the second movie completely or just a little bit? Because at the end of the second movie, correct me if I'm wrong, they go and play on fucking Mars? Well, yeah, that all was added by the studio. They didn't. No, I, I know. I know. So I guess they just ignored it. Is, right? Pretty much, yeah. And then they said, like, yeah, we used to call our daughters little bill and little ted so it's like okay so yeah they basically took that part switched it around and then ignored the rest of it i mean they kind of said like yeah they were very successful but then it all went downhill like even if that stuff is added in after the fact which it, it like you just mentioned it was that is only half of what i'm talking about the other half is like they succeeded at the end of the second movie and it's what's weird in this movie that they still haven't succeeded but yet they did well they succeeded for a while remember they they show them on the charts but then they show them going down the charts sure yeah and i you know they play fast and loose with it it's fine it is a time travel dimension hopping movie doesn't matter that much frankly but at the same time like it goes to kind of the underlying issue with this movie where it's like choices were made 
that were very distinct choices, like casting Aaron Hayes, casting Gemma Mays. And yet those choices don't pay off. The thing that felt closest to a retcon was that in the first two movies, they're always, you know, it's they're always spoken of as like the chosen ones, Bill and Ted, wild stallions. And then this one immediately comes out of the gate saying Preston Logan, which obviously, unless you are comatose or like, oh, it's going to be the kids. <laughs> but they could have still just as easily said wild stallions. The kids can be in the band. <laughs> you don't have to change the terminology that you use to make that work because it made it, it, it almost phoned it in from the beginning of the movie that their kids were going to be the ones to save the day. It's It's a shame because the film acts like we're not smart enough to pick exactly. up. Exactly. And that was, and I'm like, how, like you just said, how fucking like, how out of it do you have to be to like, not realize that's what's going on here. It's your kids, Marty. Something has got to be done about your kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is this not just back to the future? What in the future we become assholes or something? No, in the future you become convicts who are horrifying to look at, <laughs> by the way, like you mentioned, Mike, one of the best scenes in this entire film is uh, Alex Winter and Keanu in, like, hilarious, like, muscle man makeup and prosthetics. You know, I, I like them traveling into the future. I think that that's fun. But it feels, to me, like the lesser parts of the second movie, the main plot of the first movie, thrown into a blender, sprinkle in some, you know, modern contemporary wokeness, which the film thankfully does have, and that's this movie. While there's nothing wrong with that, it just, the stakes didn't really feel like they were upped. It felt like they returned back to the first and second movie, and they didn't do that in the second movie. And that was a disappointment, because this movie doesn't feel like its own thing. It feels like a melange of the first and the second one. Yeah, it, I was going to say that to to a point, the plot line with the, the daughters almost feels... It, like in in any other series, they could have gone for just the side reboot of the original movie because they're doing the same basic thing. And in lesser hands, that might have been what the movie was was just Bill and Ted's children do Bill and Ted again. But uh, instead, it, it was just one of the plot lines of the movie, which I feel probably helped it, you know, a lot more than doing that as an entire ninety minute movie on its own. And to be fair, we still may get Billy and. The, and I'm uh, or Bill and fine Ted. with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, you know, we haven't really talked about them, you know, other than mentioning, uh, you know, Bridget Lundy painting non-binary, but Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne are really good. Oh, they're fantastic. And they're not doing an imitation. They're doing that thing. I've, I feel like I've talked about it so much now. They're evoking Keanu and Alex, but in like interesting, different ways. But they still have that like dumb dumb to them that that works. But they're not. As dumb? Yeah, and Bridget Lundy Payne in particular really has that body language that Keanu had down. that Just that awkward, sort of loose posture. But in, in Samurai Weaving, I've I've grown to kind of just love her in anything, no matter what the project is. I, I, I keep waiting for her to really hit that, that, that next jump into the big time, because she's she's kind of been an MVP in everything I've seen her in. And her uncle is one of my favorite actors of all time. Also helps. She comes from a, a very uh, a very uh, talented acting family, for sure. But yeah, Bridget Lundy Payne, this is the first time I'd ever seen her in anything, and they're amazing, right? I mean, there is nothing in this film that I like more than their performances, yes. and I feel like that's intentional, right? Because I, I, 
I, this is going to sound terrible, but I don't think Keanu is that good in this movie. He's not. He's, he's not. He's fine, but he's he's definitely he's outgrown it in a way that Alex Winter was a lot more able to slip back into. I, I think Alex Winter nails it, and Keanu. It's it's like Keanu definitely is the same physical embodiment, but he feels like he's he's gone past that. Point. Is it because of John Wick? It might be. I, I think just in general, like if you look at him, like walking, he's got like a limp. Like he's he's taken a beating, you know, making his other movies. So it, it, you know, he just doesn't have that same stature, the same physicality that he used to have, and and he's he's so much more stoic with his speech than he used to be as well. Part of it is just expectation from him now as an actor because of John Wick and and other things that we've seen him in. But it's unfortunate because like. I didn't hope that one of them would be the weak link, and I really didn't think it was Keanu, just based on the fact that Alex Winter hasn't, he hasn't been in front of the camera in a very long time, and Keanu is still actively working, and I was honestly expecting Keanu to be the one who slipped back into it, and nope, it was completely the other way around, and I think the other thing about the John Wick connection, I have a hard time seeing Keanu without facial hair now. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, I don't know what it is, but like Keanu now in his, you know, in his, you know, in his kind of silver age as, you know, 56 year old, something about him with facial hair just works more than without. And it's really obvious in this film because he is completely clean shaven the entire film. I'm wondering, you know, like they're supposed to be, he's supposed to be somehow in the new Matrix movie. Neo never had facial hair. Are they going to, are they going to let him grow it out? Is he going to be clean shaven for that? How's that going to feel? They should let him grow it out. Oh, I hope they let him grow it out. <laughs> Just give him like a great big bushy beard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, like I don't want to as someone else, as someone who feels like they have a slightly weak chin, Keanu and others like myself, like growing facial hair hides that a little mm-hmm. bit. It's I mean, if we want to make more George Lucas jokes, <laughs> It's okay. I do the same thing. Like not to deride Keanu, but like he does have a weak chin. Yeah, and and I mean, you get older, your you know your body just it it changes. When he was younger, he had a very thin face, so it you know it worked differently. Having him with facial hair, I don't know if that would have changed my reaction to his performance. It might have, but I think overall, even with or without the facial hair, just like he missed a step just barely. But it, because of how good Alex Winter is and everyone else, uh, it is noticeable because he is being outclassed by everyone else because a lot of these other actors are comedic actors. And, you know, they're known for their more comedic stuff like Kristen Shaw, like Anthony Kerrigan. And he kind of feels like the weak link in a movie where he is one half of the title card. With them letting Alex Winter be, you know, a little bit more of the wackier one, like, there are little touches that kind of work to that, at least. Like, he's the one that at least considers selling his guitars and settling down. Him being a little more reserved almost fits in with the way that that script is going. But yeah, in the long run, it, it just doesn't change the fact that Alex Winter, in particular, really nailed it after, you know, 30 years or 25 years out of the spotlight. All right, guys, let's go ahead and we're going to take our final break of this episode and play a pair of interviews after that. First, we're going to hear from Bill S. Preston himself, Alex Winter, and then we'll hear from the co-screenwriter of the Bill and Ted films, Chris Matheson, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. 
1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. I've heard of the Summer of George, as in George Costanza, but this seems like it's the year of Alex Winter. It's a crazy year, so I'm not sure I want I want that. But they're all projects I've been working on a really long time. So it's just, you know, we're rolling them out. And certainly with Bill and Ted, it ended up being nothing has been good about the pandemic. It's been an absolute tragedy and and it continues to be terrifying. But we were a perfect kind of movie to release so that we didn't, you know, we would have had to make the fans wait at least another two years, I think. So or at least another year, uh, possibly two. We just really didn't want to do that. So we took a gamble on, on people wanting to watch it at home. And they did, thankfully. And it worked out. I kept reading, you know, this is the feel-good movie that we need right now to take our minds off of the pandemic. Yeah. It's been very challenging, though. You know, we, you know, Zappa was supposed to come out at South by Southwest first week of March. And literally our premiere, I think, was like the day the world shut down. A couple of days before we, we realized how serious it was, and we pulled out and the whole thing, you know, was canceled. And then all of our festivals were canceled and our whole distribution was canceled. I mean, everything was just iced. But then we also had to start talking to Orion MGM about what we're going to do with Don Ted. And, you know, it's like any slow rolling crisis. Everyone was like, what? That's in August. This this will be way over by August. We're like, I don't think it's going to be over by August. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's been very complicated, but um, look, I'm really happy with the movies. I'm really grateful they're done. And, you know, Showbiz Kids was a really great rollout for us with HBO and uh, Magnolia is doing a really good job with Zappa so far. So fingers crossed, you know, I've got good feelings about that. We'll see how it goes. How long ago was there talk of doing a Bill and Ted 3? Was it right after Bill and Ted 2 or did it take a little time? It took a lot of time. I mean, we ended, we left Bill and Ted three and di- two and didn't really see any reason, any reason whatsoever to do a third. It really wasn't until about a little over ten years ago. Um, obviously, we're all close, and I've known these guys my whole life, especially Keanu. But Ed's a really close friend of mine. I don't see as much of Chris because he moved up north. But you know, we all get along incredibly well. We've all been friendly off set all this time, so we would see each other. It was really at a dinner, I guess, at my house about 10 years ago that Ed and Chris brought up this idea they had, this kind of Dickensian idea of Bill and Ted at this age and not having fulfilled their destiny, but having gotten on with their lives and and then having suddenly having a gun to their head and being told they had an X amount of time to find the song and stealing a booth and going to try to find it somewhere in their own history. You know, for the first time, Ken and I were like, I feel like they were pitching us ideas all this time, but like for the first time, I think all of us were like, oh, that's more than just a funny dinner anecdote. Like, that's actually a movie idea. (laughs) (laughs) Playable. Like, it it seemed to us to be, you know, we could be just be ourselves at this age, you know, with with the characters, but not trying to replicate who we were then. It's not like Bill and Ted were frozen in time, right? And and come out of 
amethyst <laughs> in 2020 and, you know, have to be who we were at 19. So, but it took from then until very, you know, until right before we went into production to get it off the ground. And it was a, an extremely difficult film to get made and such a labor of love for us and for them. And, uh, and ultimately Dean Pariso came on, even Dean came on like seven years ago with Scott Krupp, Scott Krupp. Yeah. Our producer of the original two. And, and it was really the six of us uh, that rolled up our sleeves and went about finding the money and, and getting it done. What was it like even when you were exploring the characters of Bill and Ted? Because I understand that, that Ed and Chris, you know, they kind of originated the characters in, in their um, you know early days. What is it like to take something that they had done and actually play that in front of the camera? It was a process. We worked on story mostly for a really long time. Uh, then when it became evident that we were actually going to make the thing, we kind of did our own prep. Um, I did a lot of physical and acting prep just to kind of find the guy's voice at this age and his body. Uh, but we didn't really do the characters. Um, it was kind of a joke around our team that every time we did table reads and worked on the script, you know, Keanu and Alex would never go into character. And, uh, <laughs> and that went on for quite some time until literally right before we started shooting. And uh, Keanu and I were rehearsing. We were like, well, I guess we better we better actually try this together, like in character, right? Before we actually go in front of the camera. It was interesting, but it was honestly, um, it wasn't something that we took lightly, but it was something we were very relieved when we finally got in front of the cameras and we were back in their shoes that we just kind of, at that point it became natural and, and we riff off each other really well. We're very close friends and we know each other's vibe very well. Um, so we enjoy performing together. So that was really, really gratifying. Did you work with Samara Weaving and, and Bridget Lundy-Payne to have them, I can't say, they, they didn't imitate you, but they were like like little Bill and little Ted when it came to their accents and the way that they would approach things? Yeah, I mean, they did all their own prep, um, and they were great. And then they came down to New Orleans, and we all rehearsed together, and we would work on you know the script and stuff on weekends. and So we saw a lot of them. But they were doing their own thing. And, you know, what I think what they did, uh, we certainly didn't want to inform them of anything because we really wanted them to find their own identities. It was really important for this to the script that they not be carbon cutouts of us and they be kind of their own people. And they knew that, too. You know, as actors, they, they it's how they were approaching the characters it was like, who are who am I as an individual and how do we relate to each other as friends in our own way? And that's what we really wanted too. But by the same token, I could feel them watching us and uh, and observing uh, kind of our movements and our interaction. I think that they were clever because they really played their relationship to us in terms of how they they do indicate certain aspects of our character came much more from their friendship and just the relationship to us as dads, as opposed to I'm little Bill and I'm little Ted. There are moments where it feels like you are just having a ball on screen, especially when you're in those big muscle suits. It was so much. I mean, you know, for me, I I stopped acting professionally in 93 after Freaked, and uh, I've done very little since uh, intentionally. I've just kind of come back to being open to doing some more again. I've been training and doing all that kind of jazz. You know, it's not the only kind of acting I like to do. I was trained, you know, as a dramatic actor, but I love doing hyper-physical comedy. I felt like a kid in a candy store and working with Jaeger, who I've known for years, and Bill Corso, who was like my brother, and arguably two of the very greatest at their craft, you know, of all time. 
it was really gratifying. Like, I mean, as soon as I went back into that, you know, having been away for so long and just walking back into a makeup, you know, studio again and going under the gelatin, I was so happy. <laughs> and I think, I think they were happy. They're like, you know how few actors actually enjoy this. I'm like, I, you know what, I don't know where this comes from, but you know, I, just slap latex all over me and like, let me hide in some great crazy body. I'm like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. I mean, cause as Ricky Coogan, you're half monster most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that was Corso. So, you know, and Corso ran the makeup department on Bill and Ted three and Jaeger did all the prosthetics. So it was really fun in that way. What was your experience like on bogus journey? That, for me has the most stamp of you. And I don't know why that is, if it's just like the crazy humor, but it always feels like it is so amped up and it just feels like this is almost like, like an Alex winter film. This is almost like freaked or squeal of death. I think that a couple things happened. One is there was a kind of more relentless type of comedy that was on the rise that, you know, Tim Burton was, was cranking into gear very soon after we would have Trey and Matt and what they had to bring to the world. And Mike judge was cranked into gear. So there was a kind of comedy in the air at that time. The vibe for, for me um, in terms of my, my comic style was that, you know, Chris and Ed didn't write Bill and Ted, the first movie for Keanu and myself, because we were cast obviously after the film was written, but for the second one, they absolutely did write it for us, and they were well aware of my humor. And you know, I had the idiot box on TV by then, and and uh, you know, we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So the second one, I, I never had the presumption to step to the guy's creative process because they're really, really talented, um, and I knew well enough to stay the hell out of their way. So it wasn't like I imposed anything on that that movie at all. I think they they knew you know, my style, um, and they knew, and they had their own, they wanted to make it more reverent. They had their own more reverent comic style, which they allowed themselves to take the brakes off more for the second one. They were more confident as, as writers. So, you know, it wasn't about me and my influences. It was about their confidence, um, and their desire to make something more reverent. Uh, we also had a British director, uh, which I think also contributed, you know, my style is very, I am English and a lot of my my influences are British comedy. It's what I grew up with. Python, obviously, but also Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers. That whole world was really what I was weaned on. So uh, that also lent itself, you know, gave the film a kind of a Gilliam-esque spin, which was more similar to the kind of stuff that Tom and I were doing. You mentioned the idiot box, and I've always wondered what the fate of that is. Has it ever been released on DVD? Will it ever be? I don't know. We tried. I got close with MTV at one point. They gave me this excuse that it was less than an hour of content and they had to have more than an hour to make a DVD. And we offered to like give them squeal of death and a bunch of other stuff. And then they, I think at that point they stopped returning our calls, <laughs> you know, and in this day and age, I think it's kind of ludicrous that it's not just uploaded to MTV.com and, and findable via, you know, a key search on their website, the MTV that bears any resemblance to the one we we work for is, has not existed in, in a long time. Um, it doesn't even vaguely resemble that. Yeah. It's Jersey shore and whatever else they do over there. Now I don't even know. I don't think I've watched some TV since 1986, but it's uh, a different world. So 
I think that it's unlikely it'll see a DVD release unless somebody, you know, that isn't me makes some kind of a deal with someone over there whom I don't know and figures out how to package it. What I would hope for, frankly, is some kind of streaming deal. It's all on YouTube, though. That's kind of a savior of a lot of things. <laughs> it is, I know. For all of the, all of the, you know, hue and cry, it is, just, you know, Freaked. The only way you can really see Freaked is on YouTube at the moment. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. When are you getting a Criterion release? <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to ask. You'd have to ask Criterion that. <laughs> You're coming from a very literate family. Did you want to follow in the family business, or what's the story of you? I think I didn't want to follow in the family business because my dad, those are pretty big uh, shoes, to pretty big footsteps to, to follow in um, between I Am Legend and Tricky Man and very iconic Twilight Zone episodes and Duel, you know, and a lot of really, really great stuff. I wanted to do theater for quite a long time. I wanted to, like high school and early college, I wanted to be a, an actor. And then I realized that that was not something <laughs> that I wanted to do. So then I wanted to direct plays. And I focused on that for a few years. At a certain point, I just got really interested in comedy. I mean, I think I'd been interested in comedy the whole time. I mean, I loved comedy. And at a certain point, I wanted to make comedy. And that goes back to high school. That probably goes back to junior high. That goes back pretty far. And if you want to make comedy, it seems to me you've got two options. You can either perform it or you can write it. I didn't want to be a, a comedian. You know, I didn't, I didn't think I had the um, personality or the ability to do that. So I was going to have to write it down. And, and that led me into to writing so that by the time I hit probably my early 20s, I was starting to drift towards it and then doing writing and theater directing both until I was maybe my mid twenties. And then at a certain point I thought, well, I I don't know if I really want to do theater because I didn't think it was particularly good for comedy because you, you have to just do it again and again and again. And a lot of comedy is really built on spontaneity and things happening in the moment and film, you can capture that moment. You can just, you get it and you have it and it exists and, and theater you have, it's, it's so rehearsed. And uh, so I thought film was the better way to make comedy. So I drifted that way. I started writing screenplays. How did you and Ed Solomon meet? Well, we met when I was directing plays because uh, we first got to be friends because I was directing. We both went to UCLA I directed his play, basically. I directed his one-act play at UCLA. And so we we spent a lot of time together. We actually met in, in the playwriting class that I believe the play emerged from. And then I directed his play, and so we we hung out a lot while we were working on that. 
we just started laughing a lot. I think we realized pretty quickly within the first few months of knowing each other, probably sooner than that, that we, you know, a sense of humor is a, a real specific thing. It's like, it can be very bonded if two people look at the world and they kind of see the same things and think the same things are funny or ridiculous or absurd. And we did. Yeah. So we started hanging out a lot after that. You were talking about doing comedy and I'm very curious what kind of comedy it was. You know, there's, there's improv, there's stand up, there's skit. There's so many different variations of it. What were you doing? In terms of writing, I started off just writing parodies. I would just take a genre, like, like I wrote a, a parody of like World War II movies of all things. That was the very first movie thing I ever wrote. It was called GI Guys with Guns. And, and it was, um, I don't know. I haven't even looked at it. I don't even know if I still have it. But it's an easy way to, to start making comedy because you're kind of piggybacking off something that already exists and you're goofing on it a little bit. And then I wrote a parody of this um, old Charles Bronson movie, <laughs> of all things, called Death Wish, where he's a vigilante. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's in, in New York City in the 70s and he gets mugged and he just starts gunning people down. So I wrote a kind of a parody of a vigilante movie. And then I wrote a parody of like Flashdance and I wrote a parody of Rock. I was just parodying things and for the first probably year, year and a half that I was writing because it was like just a way to get started writing comedy. And I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. And I, I'd really enjoyed um, Airplane when it first came out. I thought it was funny. And I really, I really, really loved Kentucky Fried Movie when it first came out, um, especially, um, yeah, the, especially the Fistful of Yen thing, which I it just, I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely a riot. And I don't know if you remember specifically, but at the end, it turned, you know, they go Wizard of Oz, right? And it turns out it goes black and white. And, and, uh, but then the villain basically says, Oh, that is a dream of most, ex whatever his villainous line has been of most extraordinary consequences. And he pulls up his arm, which is like a little flamethrower, just like it was in, you know, when he was the villain. I just thought that joke was so goddamn funny. I, just couldn't believe how funny it was. I loved it, loved it, loved it. I was just great. So I was writing parodies at first, and then I got ambitious. And I thought, you know, I started like, I don't know, t taking myself more seriously, and, which is not necessarily a good thing for a comedy writer. It's not, actually. So then I'm like, I'm going to write a written, and I read Candide by Voltaire, and, which I loved in my mid-20s. Now I don't like it very much. Now I don't think it's funny at all. But I thought it was great when I was in my mid-20s. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to write my version of Candide, which is a ludicrous thing for a 25-year-old guy to try to do. But, you know, I did it, and that sort of – I didn't write parody anymore after that. I think I was sort of done writing parody. I wanted to do – and then, like, right after that, then, then Ed and I wrote Bill and Ted. But <clears throat> you asked about other forms of comedy, and we were also – this pretty much – a lot of that same chunk of time, we were doing improv, um, not for an audience, because we never wanted to do it. Well, we did do it for an audience a couple of times, just friends. But mainly, we would just get together, me and Ed and, and uh, a few other friends, and, and we would just, once a week, rent out this little theater, and we would just kind of goof around, and we would just play. And we would just try to make each other laugh, make ourselves laugh, um, just kind of, um, I don't know, I think it would be like... Guys going to a gym and, you know, playing pickup basketball, you know, just, just, um, playing and trying to get better. 
and work on ideas. Yeah, so that by summer of 1984, then then that's when we wrote Bill and Ted. What I had heard was that you created Bill and Ted first as through characters that you created through improv. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is actually. We we were um, we would just mess around and throw ideas around. And so the, the idea one night at our little improv group was a couple of teenage boys who are studying for uh, a history report, but they don't know anything about history. I mean, they know nothing. I mean, they really know nothing. And, and so that was the idea. And then Ed and I played the two boys and you know, I guess we just went, how's it going, Bill? How's it going, Ted? And we just started talking as Bill and Ted. I, I, I would assume that that initial thing we did was, it couldn't have been very long. It was probably five minutes or something. But we liked, you know, we enjoyed them. We thought we just, there was something about that voice. There was something about that energy that we liked instantly. And so we went out afterwards to a coffee shop and we kind of, I wouldn't say we stayed in character because we couldn't have, because we didn't know them well enough yet. But we played with Bill and Ted for like a couple of hours. We just sat there talking about their their families and their parents and their lack of parents and, and their ambitions and their fears and their inner lives and their, you know, et cetera. And, and so by the end of that first night, Bill and Ted kind of existed. How do Bill and Ted go from that into the screenplay form, and, and what's that process like for you writing that with Ed? Was this your first time writing stuff together? You know, we tried once uh, very, very early on. I wish I still had it. Right on the other side of, of putting uh, Ed's play on in um, November or December of 1981, we thought, because we'd laughed a lot doing it, we thought, well, let's try and write something which would have been a play at that point because, you know, I was a theater major and I wanted to direct and he was a, he was not a theater major. He was actually an econ major, but he, he mainly lived in the theater department and got a lot of plays produced. So we were, so we tried to write something and um, I wish I had the notes for it. It was, it was, um, it was, it was pretty funny. It was, we were going to do something just completely straight, like a Eugene O'Neill drama for like, to the best of our abilities for like, you know, 30 minutes, like really, really, really set up this family drama. And then we were just going to nuke it. We were just going to completely blow it up and have everything. You know, once you sort of had a solid framework, like, oh, this is real. And then we were just going to completely blow it up and, and just have it go nuts. And uh, we had some notes on it. I don't have it. Ap subsequent to that. And then we wrote a play together, actually with a friend named uh, Brian Kulik. We wrote a one-act play, which is basically Dante's Divine Comedy taking place in Los Angeles in 1983 called Dante Goes L.A. Um, with some of us which I don't know if I have that one either. I wish I did. It wasn't so, it was more, you know, I don't know what we wrote The first screenplay we wrote was Bill and Ted, but the, the, the build-up to it was that we just kind of played with Bill and Ted for about a year. We would just, cause I went to, to grad school to uh, do theater directing in San Diego and Ed was in LA. You know, we'd talk on the phone, Bill and Ted, or we'd write 
letters back and forth as Bill and Ted. This is this is pre-internet. You know, I'm sure we would have. It's too bad. I'm sure we'd have a lot of email back and forth as Bill and Ted, or text messages as Bill and Ted. But this all predates that. But um, there are some postcards and some letters, and and we were just goofing around with them. We just thought they were fun. We just really liked them. And then probably about a year after we made them up, because we both wanted to be movie writers, we thought, well, maybe we could do something with these funny characters that we have. And we were going to put them in a, in, in a skit movie, a Kentucky Fried movie kind of movie. They were just going to be one of, of eight or ten um, things. And then it was actually my I was talking about the idea with my dad. And my dad said, well, those Bill and Ted characters, the, the, you could make a whole movie out of those guys. So we, so Ed and I started talking about that and we thought, huh, you know, uh, my dad's pretty smart. <laughs> my dad's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> uh, when it came to writing, his advice was usually right on the money and uh, it was good advice. And so then we just started working on, I'm not sure what they were going to be in the skit movie. I don't know. I don't know exactly what we were going to do with them. I don't know if time travel existed yet. Time travel came later. Time travel was just like, well, what are we going to do with these guys? What kind of story are we going to put them in? It seemed to us that we wanted to throw them up against really, really huge events, characters, and, and, and have them be completely unfazed by all of it. So time travel seemed like a good way to do that. And we were originally going to have them be responsible for everything bad that ever happened in the history of the world. Like they were going to be somehow they were going to be responsible for the black plague. Somehow they were going to be responsible for the beginning of world war one. Somehow, somehow um, inadvertently, obviously they're just going to stumble from one situation to another. But then, you know, we realized Huh. Well, that has some dark implications, you know. Uh, that makes it, that, that means they're responsible for like the Holocaust. So I don't think we're going to do that. You know, we're not going to do that. But 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 then we had the idea of putting them in in time travel, and then we just started working on it, and we started you know just kind of putting that together, and then over the course of about a week in early summer '84, uh, we um, when his parents had this cabin up in Lake Tahoe and we just went up there and, and we just worked on it and we had the thing pretty much worked out by the time we were done and then maybe I, I don't know why we didn't write it immediately thereafter but but we didn't it was like then maybe a month later we we took like four days and we wrote the thing in four days which is amazing I've never yeah I've never done anything like that I don't think he I don't think he has either I mean that's really really fast but because we knew them very, very well. We knew how they talked and we knew how they thought and, and we had the plot worked out. So it was just like bang, 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 bang. You know, we just sat there going back and forth, just like handing, you know, a yellow legal pad back and forth. You know, it's like my, I write, 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 you know, just trying to keep up with the dialogue. You know, I write, 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 then my arm gets tired, hand it to Ed, bang, bang, you know, write dialogue, write dialogue, write dialogue. And, and uh, so we wrote it really fast. What happens after you write it? How does it go from that to actually getting shot? That was uh, summer of '84, and and, uh, and and then so we made some adjustments to it. I, I guess we must have shown it to some friends. But by mid-September, we had a draft, and we took it out. And the initial response: Ed had an agent. I didn't have an agent because I wasn't I wasn't in the business at all. Although my dad was able to help me, but um, 
I didn't have an agent. Ed, Ed did have an agent because he'd had that. He'd worked on Laverne and Shirley, the TV show, like a year previously. His agent didn't like it. Um, in fact, I think it ended, I think it ended his relationship with his agent. So, um, and we had a few other people who didn't really like it, but within a few months, there were people who did like it. And there was, a, a an agent, uh, named, uh, David Greenblatt who liked it a lot <clears throat> and he got behind it. And then simultaneously, um, my dad showed it to the guy who my dad um, made a movie called uh, Somewhere in Time with Chris Reeve and, and Jane Seymour. And uh, the producer of that, Steve Deutsch, he read it and uh, he liked it. And he was friends with a guy who was starting up his own company or not start, but was the uh, head of production, I guess, at a new company called Interscope named Robert Court. So Stephen Deutsch showed it to Robert Court simultaneously. David Greenblatt liked it. This is all very late 84, early 85. And, and it got set up and then, and then people liked it. And then it started getting a little buzz around it in Hollywood and people, people liked it a lot. And Ed and I were sort of like, you know, what's known as the flavor of the month for, for a, a little bit until we flamed out, which we did. So Warner Brothers picked it up and uh, we did a series of rewrites for Warner Brothers for about a year, none of which made it better, actually. Um, some of which were very misguided. W- one of them was like, turn the, it was a van. Originally, it wasn't a phone booth. It was, it, was a, it was a van. It was a 1969 Chevy van that Rufus, who in our original drafts was not like, you know, cool guy in sunglasses, but was just more or less a, a homeless 28-year-old uh, high school junior who lived in his van with his dog, dog Rufus, but somehow could drive through time inexplicably, mysteriously could drive through time. But with it, you know, the van was too much like back to the future. So, which came out summer of 85. So we had to figure out then. So at one point, some director wanted us to, them to ride around in like a transformer, like a giant robot. Like they were going to just ride a transformer through time, which seemed like we didn't want to do that. We didn't like that. Um, and uh, eventually, after about a year, Warner Brothers didn't want to do it. Uh, they decided they didn't want to do it. They let it go. And then uh, Dino De Laurentiis, his company, picked it up uh, in fall of 86. And then we filmed it, I, I think, January of, of 87. I remember the whole story of De Laurentiis' company going under and that just sinking this movie, just torpedoing it. The story I heard was that it was like not even put together, that it was still in like on reels and it hadn't even been edited. Was that true? It could be. I, I actually don't know. I would, it would, it's, it would be interesting to know like at what, what stage were we at? I'd have to just, I mean, you could probably figure it out. Just like when did uh, De Laurentiis um, go out of business? We filmed it in, uh, we were done shooting by like April of 87. So logically, there would have been a cut by summer of 87, end of summer, September of 87, October at the latest. But I don't know if there, I don't know if there was actually. I mean, this is something that Steve Herrick or Scott Kruf, the producer, would, would know. I'm not actually sure about that. 
I was curious how much involvement you guys had when it came to the actual shooting. I mean, of course, I know that you have a cameo in it, but I don't know if it's one of these like, hey, thanks for the screenplay. We'll see you later. Or if you're actively involved. Well, we were there, you know, pretty much we were there the whole time. Um, You know, we were just like when the thing shot, I was 27. Ed was 26. I mean, you know, we were single. We didn't have kids, obviously. We didn't we didn't really have all that much to, or I didn't, maybe Ed had more to do than me. I didn't really have much to do. So I just kind of was there um, most of the time as he was. Um, as to whether we contributed greatly because of that, geez, I don't know. I don't know. We were there a lot and we were doing things on the fly. I do remember, you know, making fairly significant changes on the set, I mean, that, that scene of the police station at the end where they kind of, kind of use magical thinking to, uh, solve their problems. That was something that we did in Phoenix at the time. What was that supposed to be? God, I wish I could remember. I would imagine that it was budgetary. I would imagine, I don't know, I don't know. My guess would be that it was more of a, of like, originally more of like a physical action scene and there was no money to do it because there was, you know, basically on these movies, there really hasn't ever been enough money to do anything properly. I mean, they've all been kind of, you know, put together with, you know, masking tape and glue essentially. It probably was a bigger physical scene and, and that, that we just couldn't get. And so we had to come up with some, alternate version that didn't have a lot of physical activity, I think. But I, I don't remember. How close were Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves to what you guys had in mind when you were initially doing the Bill and Ted characters? <clears throat> yeah, they were a lot different. Uh, Alex and Keanu are just very, very cool <laughs> guys. They're cool, good-looking. They changed Bill and Ted completely because in our minds, Bill and Ted were kind of outcasts. I mean, you can see that. I mean, they are, but because they're so kind of cool and, and good looking, it doesn't, it just, it doesn't feel like that, but, but they are that. Nobody seems to like them very much. But in, in our version, I would say Bill and Ted would have felt more like kind of losers, you know, they, they, uh, they were skinny and, and they, they were, uh, you know, they had the boxers coming out of the back of their, their jeans and, and, uh, had really, you know, kind of long hair. So once Alex and Keanu, because I, I think, you know, in, in different ways, Ed and I both for a lot of our teenage years perceived ourselves to be kind of, uh, not outcasts necessarily, but, but, you know, kind of losers in, in different ways. And, um, so we wrote them that way, but Alex and Keanu brought something totally totally different to it and made them, you know, um, they were just so much cooler <laughs> than, than what we wrote. What were some of the things that changed in the film that you might have been sad to see go? I mean, there's some dialogue rights that we liked that there just wasn't, there just wasn't room for, but that's not, that's not like a, you know, there was, there was like a, a run of dialogue with Socrates that, that we just loved and we never could get it in the movie, but we thought it was great. It was uh, Socrates, Socrates says to them, what is good? And they say, oh, something that's good. That's excellent. And he says, well, what is very good then? 
oh, well, that's most excellent. And he says, well, what's excellent? <laughs> no, they look at each other and they go, that's outstanding. We thought that was a really funny little bit of uh, dialogue. I don't know, you know, I don't know in the first one whether there are any big. That's more like number two and number three, where there are re- regrets of things that didn't get in the movie. The, the first one, most of it did get in the movie. I, I can't think of anything huge that didn't. I mean, at the end, you know, they, they, they went to the prom with the princesses. And, um, you know, we had more historical figures who, who didn't end up in the first one, you know, Amelia Earhart and who they lost. And and then, and they, they had the caveman, one of those cavemen who is there when they, and I think eats the pudding cups. Um, one of those cavemen went with them and was like part of the journey. And, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know whether that was a big deal, but it amused us. So it kind of looked smaller. So what happens when you hear that De Laurentiis, and I did look it up, it's uh, August 17th, 1988, he filed for bankruptcy. Well, then there probably was, there probably was a cut. I, I think there probably was a cut. It just was not perceived to be any good. It wasn't perceived to be of any value. I very well remember going to meetings around Hollywood and um in late 87 and early 88, and people kind of sadly shaking their heads and saying, ah, oh, what a shame about Bill and Ted. That was, that, that was a really funny script. I'm really sorry. I mean, that was the thing. It was just like, well, that's that, you know, I guess it'll go straight to video. So there, I'm, I'm pretty certain there was a cut. It just wasn't, um, it wasn't seen to be any good. When do you get the, the word that it is going to come out theatrically? Well, it comes out in February of 89. So when, when you said De Laurentiis goes under when? August of, uh, of 88? Well, they probably do a kind of a fire sale in around then. And Nelson picks it up. At some point thereabouts, got to be October of 88, they do uh, uh, another screening. There have been screenings earlier screenings and I, I don't I don't I don't think it did very well. People didn't seem to like it. But they they, they changed something. Now, I don't know what they changed. Um or maybe they just the, the people that they recruited to watch it were just different. Maybe they showed it to the wrong audience. It can happen. Um but they must have done a test screening like somewhere around, you know, late September, early October of eighty eight and it did it did well. Um people liked it and they liked it a lot. So then it got on the release schedule for for uh, early '89, and uh, I mean, I was—we were all just glad that it was going to be shown in theaters. I mean, I I'd, I had completely—I think we'd all completely resigned ourselves to, oh well, <laughs> you know, it's going to go straight to video, and uh, that's a that's a drag. And now it was going to come out, and that was—I I don't remember. You know, being like over the moon about it, but I was, I mean, I'm sure Ed and I were pleased that at least it was going to come out. And then, and then they start, and then I started, I don't know when it would have been, November, December of 88. I started just hearing about like the trailer, like the trail, like people would tell me just sort of anecdotally, like, hey, that the trailer for your movie showed in, in this, you know, before this movie that I saw. 
And people really, really laughed. People really, really liked it. And so that made me start to wonder whether maybe it had a chance. When you find out that this movie not only has a chance, but has enough legs that that a sequel is in order? You know, it's pretty quick. The first weekend it came out, and it did it did pretty good. It did it definitely surpassed expectations. But I think what what they noticed was that the second weekend it didn't drop hardly at all. Like usually, you know, movies typically drop quite a lot. You know, for you know they make a lot they make a lot of their money the first weekend. But it didn't. It, it dropped maybe not even ten percent, um, which is a very very small drop. It hung in there, and then the third weekend the same. It didn't drop. And so by the time it had been out for three weeks, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we, heard, we were starting to hear, like, well, Nelson wants to make a sequel. And it takes a couple of years for the sequel to come out. I'm curious why it takes so long. We would have started writing it in the summer of 1989, and we had a draft by the end of 19... Well... Did we? Yeah, we probably did. Well, it took a little while. You know, it just it, it took a little while to uh, to get Alex and Keanu to sign on. You know, it took a little while to agree on the nature of the story because there were two very distinct possibilities, and there was one that was much more attractive creatively, but but that was not necessarily the one that the studio wanted to do. So we had to we had to fight that battle. And the guys had to sign on, and uh, whoever else had to <clears throat> had to sign on. But I'm I'm pretty sure that by the end of '89 we did have a draft because I remember summer of '89 working on it, fall of '89. So uh, then they had to get a director, and they had to you know it just takes a little while to get the things lined up. But I, I think it shot maybe started shooting the very end of '90. Early 91, and then came out summer of 91, which is really ridiculously fast, actually, because to shoot a movie and then six months later, especially a movie that's kind of ambitious visually that has effects, that's fast. So, you know, what we were doing in 1990 and why we didn't shoot in, you know, earlier in 90, you know, you know, honestly, it probably, you know, Keanu was becoming a big movie star. So I'll bet you. I'll bet you it had to do with that. I mean, we probably we just had to wait for Keanu because you know we're kind of, that's the moment of like whatever Point Break and uh, My Own Private Idaho and you know he's lined up. I mean he's he's got jobs lined up. But you know that's probably what it is. That's a big part of what it is. You talked about the different ways that the film could have gone, and I'm curious what those ways were for you. Well, the obvious was uh, it's an English report. Uh, it's the same. It's like, okay, it's the following year, and now they have to pass an English report. And so they go into Huckleberry Finn and Crime and Punishment, uh, or not Crime and Punishment, but, you know, a literature report, and uh, and Romeo and Juliet. And they interact with those characters, and, uh, you know, it was, it was all right. It was, you know, there's pretty meta kind of jokes, I would say. It was okay, but the studio liked it because it was, that's obvious, right? It's just sort of like, well, it's a history report. Now it's a literature report. Of course you do that. You know, like why mess around with the the formula? But it just didn't seem very interesting. It didn't seem very funny. I remember spending some time with it. And it was just like, well, it's just not, it's just not that funny, number one. And number two, 
it's just going to end up being a repeat because, all right, so you're in Romeo, you know, you're in quote Romeo and Juliet. You're still just in whatever that is, you know, 1400, or it's still time travel. It's just conceptual. It's just conceptual time travel, but it's still just going to feel like time travel with some sort of meta jokes, which I, you know, I didn't want to. And then the other one <laughs> was what if someone's head get killed and by evil versions of themselves and get sent to hell and have to fight their way out of hell to come back and defeat these evil robots. Okay. Well, you know, the studio wasn't real crazy about that. I mean, they were like, I mean, we knew it was funny. I mean, it was definitely funnier. It had a lot of comedic potential because a lot of those set piece scenes, they just sort of presented themselves to us, you know, possessing Ted's dad or the seance or interacting with, you know, uh, Satan or, or their fears or playing games with death. I mean, you know, it, it, it was funny. We knew it was funny, but they were, the studio was, you know, they're, they're, they tend to be pretty conservative. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly, to this day, I'm amazed that we got Don Ted's bogus journey done the way that we got it done. Cause it's a crazy fucking weird movie. I mean, it's a really fucking weird movie. It doesn't work completely, but it's really weird. And I think it's, I think it's pretty funny in, in places. The way we got it done, it's because Alex and Keanu wanted to go that way. They didn't want to do the literature report. I don't think they would have done it. I think they basically at a certain moment said, we'll do that one and not the other. And so we got to do that one. And you said that it was there were a lot of significant differences on this one, and I'm curious what some of those are. I know there's one scene where I think it's the grandmother and the, um, the Easter Bunny come back, uh, but I'm curious what else are, are some of those other changes. Yeah, well, that's a big one, you know, that the, that the fears show up in the real world, in, in you know, uh, late Act 2, that basically the Easter Bunny and Granny Preston and Colonel Oates are terrorizing them in the real world. And it's like this weird, you know, like scary, almost evil daddy action scene where they're like on top of the roof of the van and Easter Bunny's claws are digging through the roof. And, you know, pretty, pretty um, crazy stuff. Um, and then there was a, something that did not get filmed, but might have been a better might have been a better angle on Act Three because Ed and I still look at the third act of Bogus Journey, and we're not really very satisfied. I mean, the, we're, it, the fact that it, it the studio wanted to make the movie rather quickly. I think you were asked why did it take a while. I think it was Keanu because um, other than that, it, it moved pretty quick and they greenlit it pretty quick. So that was great on the one hand because we got to make this very very strange kind of bizarre comedy. And I'm really proud of that. On the other hand, we didn't really get the third act to work. We think it's kind of a mess. There was a version that didn't get filmed, but it was on the page where basically in heaven, they bring back not, (laughs) not a Martian, which is a really fucking crazy thing to do. You go to heaven and you get a Martian. I mean, that's just like, that makes no sense. That's like a crazy improv, you know? It's just like, wait, what? You're in heaven and you get a Martian? I mean, this is like, it's, it's, it's like a non sequitur almost. It's, 
it, it really doesn't make any sense. And I, you know, station people like station and, and, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure it was, you know, the, the, the widest path for success. Actually, it's eccentric. It's very eccentric and, and people appreciate that. But anyway, there was, there was a version where in heaven they do the obvious. They get sort of biblical figures to help them in act three. So they bring back Moses and Moses parts, you know, cars on a freeway and, you know, stuff like that. It would have been simpler. It would have been more straightforward. The addition of station and the good robots that station builds ah, really tips it. It really just makes it kind of like kitchen sink comedy. And I think there are people who like it. And, and I appreciate that they like it. And I think that they like it for some good reasons. It's odd. And it's it's sort of unexpected. I don't think it works. I don't think Ed thinks it works either. And I don't know whether that other one would have worked better, but it would have been cleaner and it would have been simpler. From the moment that they come back into their dead bodies until, you know, basically the song at the end, which I think is pretty good, that Kiss song and them playing, but all that stuff at the concert is just chaotic. You know, it's just like, wow, the dramaturgy here is is not good. It is not good. It's too bad because Bogus Journey up till that point, I really quite like it. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's very, very funny. I absolutely love the design of Hell and those characters that are in there. It's fantastic. Oh, oh fantastic. That's, you know, that's all, uh, all credit for that goes to Pete Hewitt, the director. He had quite a um, visual uh, sophistication. That was one of the first things he did, too, if memory serves. Well, that's his very first feature, yeah. He he had made a short called uh, The Candy Show or something like that. He'd made this, you know, like film school, basically, or right out of film school. I think maybe his, I think it was maybe his, his film school movie. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really styling. It was really, really styling. And so people dug it. But uh, Bogus Journey is his first feature. And, um, yeah, that house stuff's fantastic. I mean, he just, he absolutely killed it. The sequence at the end with all the magazine covers and their kind of rise to fame, was that in there or was that tacked on? Yeah, that's tacked on. Uh, you know, that, 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 okay. in terms of the third movie, that stuff really caused us a lot of problems. Because well, that was never our intent um, certainly stuff like they play the Grand Canyon, they play Mars, they blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's way getting ahead of what we would have wanted to do. They play in front of the whole world, pretty much, and people like it, and it launches them. But it's, you know, all that stuff makes it seem like it's the end of the story, and so we had to, you know, un- undo <clears throat> some of that in face the music we didn't write the way. that was like the titles company that did that how soon after bogus journey did you start working on face the music 17 years i mean forever like we didn't it was over bill and ted was just kind of done we we were not going to make another bill and ted movie for a variety of reasons um i don't think we had an idea well i know we didn't have an idea I don't think that the guys were interested in doing it again. 
And I don't think from a commercial standpoint, Bogus Journey had done all that well. So it wouldn't have even really made any sense financially. Nobody was asking her to do it. And and we didn't have an idea. And uh, Alex and Canada didn't seem to have any interest in doing it. So it was really completely um, inactive, I would say, for 15 years. I, I presume that every now and then, I don't know this, and I don't have any notes to prove it, but I would assume that every now and then Ed and I would just kind of go, huh, I wonder what Bill and Ted would – what would Bill and Ted 3 be? Maybe, but we didn't have anything. We didn't, we didn't have any ideas. And, and then somewhere – it was 2008, and Ed and I got an idea. Maybe it was partially the time passing. If we'd made it – tried to make a third one two years later – I don't really know that we would have had a story. I, I don't I don't know what we would have done, actually. But because by 2008, 17 years had passed, we could imagine a version of things where it hadn't turned out, where it hadn't worked, where their song had not saved the world, where they hadn't become, you know, saviors of planet Earth, where they were struggling. And... That seemed like a, a really, really good comedic starting place to us. That seemed funny. That and 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 then very, very quick we knew that it was it wasn't them. It just wasn't them. It was their kids. We 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 kind of we felt that. So we got together with Alex and Keanu in, in fall of two thousand and eight, and and we said at, at Alex's house we had like a backyard kind of barbecue at Alex's house. And uh, we just sort of ran a pie on what, what we had, just as a general starting point. Do you guys like that? Do you find that interesting? Are you interested at all in in pursuing this? And, you know, the fact that, that basically we were having this dinner at all implied, yes, I mean, they wouldn't have even done it. But they were. They, 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 they both found that interesting, the idea that it hadn't worked out. And what did that feel like? What was it like to be Bill and Ted? you know, 20 years on when it hasn't worked out. But we didn't have the story yet. We didn't, we didn't know what the plot, we had a variety of ideas, none of which were really any good, but we had the premise. And so then for the next year or so, year plus, Ed and I would just kind of on and off tinker with it. Like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And at a certain point, we came up with kind of the, the plot engine, so to speak, which is they're going to try and steal the song from themselves. They're going to try and go into the future and take the song from themselves. And once we had that, then the guys were like, yeah, you know, because once we had that, then, then certain comedy scenes fell into place because we knew by this point that when the guys interact with themselves, it's funny. They like doing it. We like writing it. It tends to be pretty funny. We had those scenes. We knew the, you know, the, the Dave Grohl scene, the amateur night scene, the prison scene, the old guys scene. We had that stuff. Well, I mean, we didn't have it written, but we had it conceptually. Yeah, the guy said, well, why don't you write it? So then Ed and I wrote it on spec, meaning, you know, we just did it. I mean, it's kind of like even beyond writing it on spec, we didn't own it, actually. MGM owned it. So we were writing a property that we didn't even own, which, you know, is kind of like remodeling an apartment that you rent in a way. You know, it's, it's not it's a kind of a crazy thing to do. 
but we, we wanted to, and, and we wanted, you know, we, we liked this idea. So we wrote it and we had a draft by 10 <clears throat> and then the guys had uh, their ideas because, you know, we're kind of just partners with Alex and Keanu on this thing. So we did a rewrite for them, which was, you know, pretty substantial. They had, they had pretty strong ideas. And then by 11, we were ready to go out into the world, and, and we took it out into the world, and it was just kind of a resounding dud. Like, nobody wanted anything to do with it, So, which was surprising. That is very surprising. I mean, especially studios these days seem to be so crazy about making remakes and, and cashing in on stuff. It feels like this would be a natural thing. Like, of course we're going to do a third Bill and Ted. I mean, I don't think it was that obvious because, you know, Bill and Ted just never made that much money. I mean, there's that. I mean, they were kind of culty. And the second one did not as well as the first one. So it wasn't like we were talking, you know, Star Wars or a Marvel Universe thing at all. I mean, these are really not super profitable movies. They were much more like kind of culty movies that certain people liked quite a lot. Also, to the degree that there was interest, and there was some interest, you know, vague interest. It was more like, well, <laughs> it's kind of a repeat of the bogus journey thing. If you just, why don't you have their daughters need to pass the history report? And then the whole family gets in the phone booth, and they all take an adventure through time to help the daughters pass a history report, you know, like that kind of journey. And we, you know, we didn't want to do that. We didn't like that. We didn't. We just didn't think that was funny or interesting. We just didn't want to do it. And the guys would not have done it. So, uh, you know, our movie from the get-go was about failure and dealing with failure and mortality and disappointment. I mean, the the themes of it were rather heavy, and that didn't make it easier either. <laughs> Because there was that sense of like, this was like a Bill and Ted movie. You know, I remember hearing that a number of times. This was like a Bill and Ted. This doesn't, you know, it was like, this was like a Bill and Ted movie. It was like, it's such a downer. You know, that, that's what we heard a number of times. We didn't think it was because we thought it had a, well, first of all, we thought it was funny. And second of all, we thought it had a happy ending. But, you know, that was the perception. I have one draft of the script, which was from 2012. There are moments in it that are, really similar to what ends up coming out, though it's still their sons. It's not their daughters yet. I'm just surprised it's out there because I don't know. <laughs> I'm, you know, things get out there, so I'm not that surprised. But yeah, no, you're the first person I've talked to who actually has seen an earlier draft of, uh, of Face the Music. Interesting. My sense would be that those scenes where they interact with themselves in the future are are pretty similar, are pretty pretty close. That stuff would be pretty close in those drafts because that was that's the stuff that we got um, early on. But other stuff, you know, changed quite a bit. The daughters, the daughters having their own adventure, hell, the robot, all that stuff came in. When does this finally get a green light that there is for sure going to be a Bill and Ted 3? In 2015, we went into business with a, with a studio called STX because they wanted to make it. And we did a, we did a rewrite for them in early 2016. But they didn't like the rewrite that we did. And I'm kind of glad that that draft, I mean, that, that would be an interesting draft to kind of, you know, at some point we should just share Ed and I, that is a number of these drafts, because it would be interesting to see the evolution of this. And that, the, 
it, that draft is much more like, you know, Ted works in a, it sells timeshares and Bill drives, you know, drives around doing Uber eats. And, you know, it's much more like them, their naturalistic sort of life as, as, you know, failures kind of, um, but which was, you know, more or less what the studio wanted. So, you know, we did it and, and we made a lot of the big changes at that point. They became daughters, the daughters get their own adventure and pick up musicians. They go to hell. The robot enters into the story and the concert ends up taking place on the freeway. You know, it's like a lot of big changes that stuck happened at that in that draft, but they didn't want to do it. Um, so then it languished uh, again for another period of time, a year maybe. And then uh, this uh, guy named Alex Leibovich, who has Hammerstone Studios, he got interested. He wanted to do it. And he really worked his ass off and um, put it together and put together the financing so that I would say it was, you know, probably sort of, quote, greenlit at the end of, end of 18, early 19. But in in reality, uh, we were on the brink of falling apart because we shot it in New Orleans. I mean, four days before cameras rolled, we were going to have to shut down. I mean, it was like, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, it was touch and go the whole time. It was on the brink of collapsing so many near-death experiences. Oh, my God, so many near-death experiences. It was really kind of amazing the first day when cameras rolled and being called to action. You know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. We talked about some of the, the changes that happened before the cameras even rolled, and I'm curious, how did it change as it went through the process of actually being filmed? We had such a short schedule and so little money. It was shot very lean, in a very lean manner, a very lean economical manner. You know, it was like we had thir- 37 days, I believe, to shoot this movie, which has, you know... <sighs> God, I mean, the past, the future, hell, the end of the world. I mean, old, old alternate versions of uh, two main characters. It was a very difficult movie. And they were flying. I mean, I don't think Dean did more than you know three or four takes of anything. It's just go, 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 go. So once we had the shooting thing, maybe some stuff dropped off while we were shooting. I don't think so. I think they just kind of like it was just like barrel through. There's just one part of the movie where I kept thinking, was there more to this? And it was the quote unquote kidnapping of the wives and the, the two characters that kidnapped them. And I'm just like, what's happening here? Yeah, there, there was, I mean, there is this one of, of the three there, there is, this would be the most interesting probably of, of the three to look at the evolution of it because uh, yeah, those scenes exist. Sure. They had their own, they had their own adventure where they just kept checking in on the looking for a life that's happy with Bill and Ted and never finding one, like every single one. Like, you know, when they show up and, and like basically Bill and Ted are living in a dumpster, you know, and, and in another one, they go visit them in prison and, and, uh, you know, it's just, and then another one, it's this horribly embarrassing sort of Thanksgiving where Bill and Ted show up and they're just these sort of shambling, pathetic losers, you know. It existed. It's just, we didn't have the time or the money to shoot it. 
and there were some scenes that were, I mean, you were asking about regrets, and, and there are a couple of scenes in this one in particular. Well, I regret that that's not in the movie, of course, because it would have rounded it out a lot. And I think Aaron and Jama did a, an excellent job with what they had. But this would have been so much better if we'd had these scenes. Yeah, I mean, they exist. We just couldn't do it. And then there was a, there were a couple more scenes of them interacting with themselves in Act Two. That were I thought really really funny. There was a scene where they where they basically think to themselves, well, you know, you probably read this. I mean, this this would have existed in the 2012 draft. Did you read the scene where they go back and terrorize the kid versions of themselves? I, I loved that scene. I thought it was hilarious. It's like let's go back and just interact with our nine year old selves and get our nine year old selves on track so that by the time we hit the age we are now, we'll know what to do. And they just instead, they just go back and scare the shit out of their nine-year-old self. They're just like, you've got to do everything perfect. You just have to do everything perfect. Otherwise, the world's going to end and your wife's going to leave you. And the kids are just crying and and then leaving. He's like, dude, now I remember. I thought I'd had all these fears and anxieties just for other reasons. I now realize I did it to to myself, (laughs) which I thought was just great. But, you know, there just wasn't just no time, no room to do it. How was it seeing this movie come out, especially at this time, and seeing the reaction to it? Because the reaction I've seen has just been so much love coming out for these characters. Yeah, it's gratifying. You know, I'm I'm glad. I mean, the hope was it's a hard time, right, between the pandemic and and what it's done to the country in a variety of ways and all the stress and the division that, that we would put something out that maybe would just feel good for 90 minutes would just feel kind of like sweet and warm to a large degree that's happened. I mean, there are people that it's infuriated, of course, because that's where we are. Apparently people, I mean, we're infuriated by it. I was like, but I think generally, yeah, people have, have um, they, they like it. And so that's, yeah. I'm glad. It must be interesting to revisit characters that you haven't written about or possible. Well, it sounds like you did think about them, but that you hadn't written about for so many years. How is that kind of stepping back into those shoes and writing a Bill and Ted after so long? It was interesting. Um, I, I remember, I think we just sort of pushed it, or at least I kind of pushed it to the back of, of my mind. Just was like, well, you know, well, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. You know, it'll be all right. We'll figure it out. We just kind of tried to come up with a story, kind of just hoping, I guess, believing maybe that we could reaccess these guys. But at a certain moment, and it would have been early 2010, we sat down and we were like, well, okay, now we got to write Bill and Ted, which we haven't done in 20 years, 20 years. And how's it going to go? What's that going to feel like? Luckily, we had a scene lined up. The movie original, maybe the version you read even, began with the wedding. It just began with the very first shot in the movie was them walking on the little stage and saying, hello, friends, you know, welcome to the, to Missy and Deacon's wedding and, and their toast, which is, you know, kind of ridiculous where they just end up coming up with a lot of, you know, like that makes my dad his own son and stuff like that. And it, it, it felt very Bill and Ted like to us. 
and it made us laugh so that by and it helped us break the ice so that by the time we wrote that i think we felt okay yeah you know it's riding a bike we can still do this but we know we know how to write these guys and if anything you know maybe we can write them even in a in a deeper way because they're older and we're older and there's a lot more perspective and you know, when we wrote the first two, we were just young guys. And we were just guys in our 20s, basically. And now we're, like, older and married and, and with kids. And maybe that'll get in there. That was the hope. What did you think of the other incarnations of Bill and Ted, things like the cartoons or the live-action shows? You know, I've literally never seen one second of that stuff and uh, I'm sure I'd despise it honestly I'm sure I would just think you guys don't understand that, I, that's my assumption but you know I could be wrong I mean I've never really been interested but if somebody just said watch it I, I don't think I'd like it and so I don't really want to subject myself I don't know yeah, how is it is it any good is any of that so would you recommend any of this I've never tried it. I've, I've <laughs> just to be honest, I never tried it out because I was probably nineteen, twenty when the second one came out, and so the idea of watching like cartoon shows and stuff, it just wasn't you know other than like Ren and Stimpy and Beavis and Butthead, I wasn't really watching cartoons in my twenties. I didn't even know that there was a live action version until recently when I was looking stuff up, and I was like, oh, okay, well this makes sense. Because it seemed like that was the thing to do. I would think that the cartoon would have a, a better chance of being okay than the live action. Because the live action, like, well, good luck competing with Alex and Keanu, you know what I mean? Whereas the cartoon, I think they did the voices for the first year. Anyway, so maybe the cartoon's all right. I, I, I don't know. Maybe even Carlin did Rufus. I really don't know. Maybe he did. I'm not sure. I absolutely love Mom and Dad Save the World. I actually saw that in the theater when it came out. I don't think enough people sing the praises of that movie. And then you talking about how you would parody things. I mean, that just must have been such a natural fit for you. It was pretty fun to write, you know? It was pretty fun. And, and certainly we, we felt that Todd Spengo was a very funny character. He was a lot of fun to write because... I I don't think we're the only comedy writers who think lame villains are fun. Lame villains are fun, you know, because the 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 blustery, bombastic, vain character who's just sort of foolish and ultimately weak. And oh man, yeah, that's that's funny. And and Lovitz uh, Lovitz, you know, Lovitz is legit funny. And Lovitz, I remember going to the first read. Well the read-through of it and uh, both of us really laughing like shit man <laughs> he's gonna be really funny he's pretty damn funny yeah and a number of people have kind of pointed out the sort of uncanny resemblance between todd spango and donald trump which i think is funny too what are you working on these days i mainly write books these days i'm kind of done with uh the hollywood thing it was it's a good job. And they, Ed said long, long ago, he said, it's either the best bad job in the world or it's the worst good job. I can't decide. And, you know, I, I know what he means. It's a, it is a good job in many ways. It's, it's, you know, you have a lot of free time and you get to make stuff up. And, and um, 
you know, sometimes you get paid pretty well. Other times you don't. I mean, it's long dry spells for me anyway. No money at all. I think I'm ready now, or I have been for years. I want to just make the comedy that I want to make and just put it in a book and do it that way. You know, film's great because it's so collaborative and it's really fun and it's exciting and other people make your stuff better. It's all great. They can also make it worse. I mean, I have me, I, I and almost every other screenwriter, they've got stories of just like, well, and whether they're right or wrong, they think they have stories of things that got ruined by other people. Of course, I have those stories too. Uh, you know, I have stories of people, uh, things being made better, but you know, the collaborative thing is just, uh, if you really want to write, 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 books are kind of attractive in that way. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on now. I've written these books, which are sort of, um, you know, in terms of, they're not parodies, but I basically have this fascination with religion, which sort of manifests in Bogus Journey, I guess. And they are my version of the Bible told from God's point of view, as, sort of as a comedy. So that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'll keep doing. Are you working on another one of those, or are you working on more of a straight-up comedy? I have one that just came out, which is called, which is about Buddhism, because I found that sort of insufferable as well when I looked into it. So that, that one just came out. It's called, it's called The Buddhist Story. I might be done... Well, I don't know if I'm done with religion. You know, I, I really don't like um, kind of absolute truth claims. Absolute truth claims really irk me. And religion is the big pretender. Religion is the one. Like, we're the possessors of absolute truth. So that makes them very ripe for being made fun of, uh, I think. So I'm, I'm going to do that a little bit more. And then and then just try and write things that I think are, are funny and maybe... You know, I'm 61 years old. What I'll be writing in 10 years, I don't know. I'll just keep trying to write things that I find interesting, I guess. Mr. Matheson, thank you so much. This was wonderful talking with you. Thanks for inviting me. We are back, and we are talking about the Bill and Ted trilogy, and I can't believe we went through this entire thing without you know, going super in-depth into the cartoons and the live-action TV series. Oh, Get I, I was, out I was of waiting. here! <laughs> I, was I mean, this is, this is the logical final step in this uh, podcast, right? Is to talk about all the failed ideas and shit that never took yeah. off. Well, before that, I did want to, since we're talking about the series as a whole... Uh, we didn't really talk about the creation of the characters, which I think is something that's really fascinating as well. And I'm sure Chris Matheson's interview will get into that. But just the fact that it started is just them doing like a stage duo talking about current events and getting everything wrong. And and it was very much an improvised thing. And when they wrote the script, they wrote it out just like by hand. 
and they didn't attribute lines to either character. They basically wrote them as one character, and I think that's kind of the brilliant thread that works through all three movies, is that anything they say can be attributed to either character and work. That they, they are one singular unit of lovable stupidity. <laughs> that's that's for the posters right there. <laughs> A singular unit of stupidity. Lovable and stupidity. That, lovable stupidity. What's weird about Bill and Ted, right? Because again, uh, unless you've dug deep into it, like Mike mentioned, with going into the, the weirder ephemera, at Halloween Horror Nights, which is what Universal Florida and Hollywood do in October, they put on Halloween Horror Nights, which is where they convert the... Uh, theme park into like a uh, essentially a giant haunted house and they do Halloween themed stage shows and the, one of the mainstays since I don't even remember when it started whenever probably in the early 90s they had Bill and Ted's excellent Halloween adventure show which was a stage show featuring the two characters and they would make jokes about current events and current things going on in the world. And that ran from the early 90s until 2017 and was one of the most popular shows at Halloween Horror Nights. And people were all up in arms when it got canceled. And it's kind of weird to me how much weird ephemera is connected to Bill and Ted that so many people like have no idea about. It was a marketing overdrive of a series pretty much right until Bogus Journey. And after that it sort of dropped off because like I said, you know, I grew up with the cartoon and the serial. I mean, there was video games. The NES game is uh, incorrigible. There's a PC game that I cannot wrap my head around, but you can apparently beat it. The NES game is awful. <laughs> Come on, man. The NES game is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, my favorite thing about the PC game is you can look up a video of it on YouTube. It can be finished in 15 minutes. <laughs> it's it's barely a game, but that's from Capstone. That was a company that literally, like LJN on the NES, they would buy the rights to anything they could get their hands on, then make a crappy uh, point-and-click adventure game out of it. And like they made a Wayne's World game that was miserable. They made one based on the dark half where, I swear to God, the solutions to hiding evidence that you may have killed somebody uh you you have to put it in your mailbox or your own closet that's that's the last place you should hide murder evidence so it was a bad company but yeah there was that I, but the one thing that stood out to me was that i <sighs> tried i got about a third of the way through the episodes i watched some of the live action tv series did you guys see any of that i have seen it only because of you know bill and ted yeah, I let Morbid Curiosity get the better of me. They had, you know, a couple of guys I didn't know playing Bill and Ted. Rick Overton playing Rufus, who didn't do too bad. Uh, you know, you get a comedian, I guess. You can't measure up to George Carlin, but they tried. But I only got about three episodes in, and then I just got really uncomfortable because I swear to God, the third episode is about how some, like, fancy TV doctor soap opera character guy uh decides that he wants to have a gender reassignment and the whole episode is about bill and ted convincing this person that he's fine as a man and doesn't need to do it and it was the most uncomfortable thing i have ever seen that 30 years ago nobody would have thought twice about i haven't watched the cartoon or the tv series but i remember they seem to have started it correctly so like 89 Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure live action comes out. 90 Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures uh, animated series comes out. And Winters, Reeves, and Carlin are all back. But then 
91 is when Bogus Journey comes out, and 91 is when the second season of Excellent Adventures, the cartoon, switched to these guys that you guys are talking about. And then they, those actors, uh, Evan Richards, Christopher Kennedy, and Rick Overton, they end up warping into the live action Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, which happens in 92. I don't know why you would go, it seems like the, the complete wrong trajectory to go from an animated series to a live action series, especially when you're dealing with time travel and stuff. It's like, why would you ever, I mean, you can do so much more in animation, especially when it comes to time travel stuff and, and having like different people from history and not having to invest a thousand dollars in powdered wigs. It seems rather counterintuitive, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the cartoon is, is odd because Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, from what I've watched of the cartoon several episodes, it's essentially Carmen San Diego. Like, it's very, like, edutainment. Yes, I remember it feeling very educated. I mean, that was one of the things why I didn't watch Young Indiana Jones. It was just like, oh, yeah, now he's going to meet this person from history. It's like, okay, did Indiana Jones meet every single person from history in the short time that he was alive? Give me something like, uh, what was it, the the, the Wanderers or whatever it was? Uh Oh, shit. I can't remember. There was a really good time travel show when I was a kid, and it wasn't Sliders. It was something even before that. <laughs> I was about to say, are you talking about Sliders with John Reese davies <laughs> It was, uh, there was a guy, God, what was his name? Barnabas or something, and he had a watch where he could travel through time, and then this kid ends up joining him, and it was great. And they, again, they met a lot of historical figures, but it was like, okay, yeah, we have these shows all the time, but it seems like... Bill and Ted should have succeeded more than two seasons of a cartoon and one season as a live action show. Not only a cartoon, but a cartoon that half, you know, like you mentioned, halfway through its run went from a Hanna-Barbera cartoon to a DIC cartoon, which if any of us remember watching DIC cartoons, they were very educational compared to Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera was, if there's one thing Hanna-Barbera was not, it was educational nor uh, expensive. Watching the first season of the cartoon versus the second season, the first season is much better than the second. And that's only because it has Keanu and Alex and George Carlin. In. Yeah, George Carlin entertaining children years before he became Mr. Conductor on Shining Time Station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you gotta pay your taxes. <laughs> yes, somehow you gotta make money. I mean, you know, it's, it's all coming from that Bill and Ted's excellent serial. That's what it is. What I was trying to think of was a show called Voyagers. And Chris, you'll be happy to know this. It only lasted one season. I wanted to walk back my Charlie Schlatter comment from earlier, like uh, Josh did with his comment. It wasn't uh, It wasn't Bill and Ted that Charlie Schlatter replaced someone famous in. Charlie Schlatter replaced Matthew Broderick in the ill-fated Ferris Bueller TV oh, show. Oh, Mike's Another Mike's TV show that movie. existed for... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another TV show that existed for ostensibly no reason. Which is not to be confused with Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Another TV show that I know Mike doesn't like that has a Bill and Ted connection is Tales from the Crypt, which features William Sadler in several episodes of the show. But in the episode The Assassin, which we covered on the widely acclaimed Chronicles from the Crypt podcast, shameless <laughs> self-promotion, uh, he plays the Grim Reaper in that episode. Does he rap? He, uh, no, he doesn't rap, but he is in the rap arounds featuring the Crypt Keeper. Mm. But it is the exact same character, which is super weird. 
Uh, yeah, I might have to look into that. And, I mean, otherwise, my only association with him to Tales from the Crypt was the star he starred in Demon Knight, which I feel like never gets enough respect. That's a fun movie. He's also in the best episode of Tales from the Crypt, which also happens to be the first episode of the show. Doesn't say much about Tales from the Crypt, but hey, there you go. I have not revisited Tales from the Crypt since the 90s, and I feel like I should someday, but I'm terrified that it's not going to hold up. The episode I watched did not. Mike watched an episode that was good. He watched Cutting Cards, the episode with Lance Henriksen, where him Ooh. and the other guy are cutting their like limbs off. Somehow Mike didn't like it, which was weird because we, we were trying to set Mike up for success. See, I don't even remember that episode. All I remember is um, Jeffrey Tambor mm-hmm. in a fat suit. Dancing with Demi Moore. Yeah, and I remember uh, William... Oh, God, the, the old man oh, from William Princey's Hickey, Honor. Or William Hickey. Hickey? Yeah. Yeah, I remember the William Hickey episode. I remember those better than... I mean, I'll, I'll watch anything for Lance Hendrickson, so you got me sold. Especially if there's dismemberment everywhere. For me, Bill and Ted, like, there's so many weird things that have come out with, you know, with association to it. Like, the comics that, you know, were coming out when it was a, well, first originally came out. And then in 2015, they released some more comics. It just goes to show, like, the branding in the late 80s, early 90s was insane. It was totally wild. Just like, Bill and Ted don't need a cereal. Like, that's not a thing that the world needed. But yet we got it. But man, it's it's such a good memory for me. So, you know, I'll take it. I'm sure it tasted like garbage, but I remember it having like a little, I think it was like a little phone booth shaped bowl that I had and I loved it. It was my favorite thing. <laughs> I am so curious about Bill and Ted the musical. I dug up that musical and so I'm excited to hear that and maybe we'll close out the show with a, a song from the Bill and Ted musical. Yeah, I haven't looked into that. So I've, I, I've, I've been meaning to. I was going to notice, though, because we were talking about that, you know, just that whole marketing kick. And it feels like, you know, there's that point in the early 90s where Bill and Ted just sort of stopped, like just screeched to a halt after the second movie. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with the fact that that bogus journey came out right before grunge was a a thing nationwide. I I wonder how much that affected the, the public vision of Bill and Ted going from, like, cool rock guys to, like, lame old dad dudes. (laughs) I don't know if that was necessarily the case, but I know that that movie just did not do well. Apparently, looking at, you know, Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, it says its budget was $20 its box office was 38 but the studio was expecting another Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was a huge success, and they did not get that. They did not get the, that was 6.5 million and we made 40 million off of it. So <laughs> that was many, many times a uh, return on investment compared to uh bogus journey. And I working at the theater, it, it was kind of a dead show. We huh. did not get that many people huh. coming to see it for whatever reason. I, I also forgot to mention, but Bogus Journey was another one of those weird victims of MPAA censorship in a weird way, where the original title was supposed to be Bill and Ted Go to Hell, and the MPAA apparently said, you can't say hell in a title. <laughs> and they did like they did that again with the South Park movie that was supposed to be called All Hell Breaks Loose. And since they wouldn't let him do that, they turned it into a dick joke and got away with it. It took me so long to figure out that that was a dick joke. <laughs> they said they suggested that one as a fake title, and it got put on the movie. <laughs> I love that. Well, as we like to say, the MPA are dumb. 
Really dumb. Oh. How dumb? So dumb that they think hell is a bad yeah, word. Yeah, uh-huh. so. it was referring to the place. You know, what else is it going to be called? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I really love the idea that in 91, the studio looked at the original Bill and Ted, a film that, for all intents and purposes, was successful just lightning in a bottle and thought, oh, we'll be able to recapture this. Oh, man. And then they're mad when they don't. I'm sorry our movie spoofs the seven seal, the seventh seal guy. Sorry. What did you want from us? They at least gave them the freedom to make the movie they wanted. And that's more than you usually get out of, you know, any cookie cutter sequel. If there's one thing Bogus Journey is not, it is a cookie cutter sequel. No, I appreciate that they went for it and they went there and they succeeded. I would say. Depending on the day of the week, that that could be my favorite sequel of all time. It's it's just so weird, and that probably set a lot of the tone for my childhood as being the weird kid, come to think of it. And look, it, it was so successful, the second one was, that we did get a third one. And the third one was not crowdfunded, either. It was a real film made by uh, an actual studio. I almost totally forgot, in the credits, that I'm sure a very, probably important part of the production process that nobody talks about is that one of the main producers is Steven Soderbergh, of all people. Yep. Who, that's not, you know, he's not the kind of person I really tie to a project like Bill and Ted. So I, I wonder just how deep his involvement was, or if it was just like, hey, I like Bill and Ted, here's as much money as you need. I would love to know the story behind that. But hey, you know what? It is great that Bill and Ted was released by Orion. Yes. And then the second one was released by Orion. And then Orion died and came back. And then the third one was released by Orion. There's been a few... Modern Orion releases, I can't remember all of them, but seeing that logo will always, you know, warm my heart because, I mean, that was, you know, that was the Bill and Ted logo when I was a kid. That was Robocop logo. That that meant quality to me when I was younger, even if they didn't make a whole hell of a lot of movies. Yeah, I mean, I think the last Orion picture I saw before Bill and Ted Face the Music was probably Silence of the Lamps. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They did, like, Silence and uh, Dances with Wolves and uh, Platoon, right? Somehow, Orion was caught up in the De Laurentiis stuff, because that, there was that whole, like, fight over the rights to uh, the Clarice Starling character and all that. So, I, I, if, I felt like their bankruptcy wasn't necessarily tied to De Laurentiis' bankruptcy, but it felt like there was some, you know, it was like all of these smaller companies were going out of business at the same time. And their assets got caught up in it, which... I mean, for someone who is such a huge fan of Hannibal, I can't complain. But at the same time, I can because, uh, you know, Hannibal is kind of a a show without without one of the parts that makes it such an important thing. And then the show that they're making now with Clarice, called Clarice, is missing the thing that makes her an interesting character. You're talking Will Graham, right? Oh, I, well, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're, you're you're talking to the Manhunter fans oh, I, here. No, Sorry. I'm right there with you guys. Like, I love Manhunter. Like, I fucking don't don't stick me in a room with Red Dragon. Jesus H. Christ. So much of these like weird things that have happened with important things from the 80s and 90s, important intellectual properties getting tied up with that Orion bankruptcy De Laurentiis thing was just it really fucking sucked for a lot of things like Bill and Ted, because I feel like we probably would have seen a Bill and Ted three earlier if not for what happened. Yeah, it's it's very possible. I, I, I always remember 
on the DVD for UHF, though, Weird Al just takes credit. He said, yeah, we're the movie that killed Orion Pictures, whatever. <laughs> you know, final statements. I'm glad that it has managed to persevere over 30 years. None of the three movies have ended up being a disappointment, which it would have been so easy for the movie from last year to be a disappointment. But in a year filled with just sadness and worry and negativity, bottom line of that movie was, a, you know, a very non-ironic embrace of a unity that I feel like people are lacking right now. And, and, and it just, it felt so real <laughs> in a world where everything feels so surreal right now. And as someone who doesn't have kids yet, but got choked up at the end of this film, watching two characters who, like you said, Josh, I felt like they have been a big part of me growing up and have shaped my, not my identity, but have been part, like you said, it's been part of my life for 15 years now, getting to see them finally like take a backseat in their own story and realize that they're not the center of the universe anymore. Like there's something very sweet about that. And that post credit scene where they're together playing their guitars. I mean, it grabs at your heartstrings. If you're a fan of these films in a way that like you didn't think these films could, but you hoped that they would. And ultimately the final time we get to see Bill and Ted together is I think one of the most poignant scenes in any of these films. It's just so it's just such a poignant scene and it's yeah. Getting to go on the journey with these characters and them actually having a conclusion to their stories that fans will actually get on board with and like is it's, it's an underrated thing to pull off in, in 2021 to the credit of that post credits sequence. That might be the best post credit scene I've ever seen. Cause it is a perfect postscript to their whole series. And in going into the movie, I was afraid, like, what if they're going to sequel bait us? And then when that last act kicked in and they started putting things together, I was like, this is it. I'm going to actually see the great ones do the thing. <laughs> and how often do do they, you know, do movies put that off? And they say, no, no, they're not going to do it yet. You got to wait. And And the fact that they had the nerve to go there instead of try to bait it out into another franchise made me very happy. And yeah, I got really emotional, too. It was... It was just nice, and you can't – I feel like it's so hard to just call things nice anymore. <laughs> and I've seen that kind of, like, crowdsourced credit sequence kind of thing done before, but in 2020, when everybody's basically locked indoors, seeing that joy and seeing people again really kind of choked me up. Like, that was a real moment for me. Yeah, the last thing I expected going into a Bill and Ted movie was to to end up with tears in my eyes, and that was exactly how I left it. No matter how many bumps that last movie has along the way, I feel like it ended exactly how it needed to. And ultimately, for me, that, in spite of its failures, is the biggest success. Yes. Is that I actually walked away from these three movies going, this is a story told from beginning to end, while there may be issues with it, the way it concludes, if this is the final time we see them on screen, which even if it's not, that's fine. But it ends in a way that I think works. And man, films don't do that anymore. Just little moments. <laughs> like the and, and the other, I was going to say, I almost forgot. The other one moment that really stuck with me uh, from Face the Music is just Jimi Hendrix and uh, Mozart playing against each other. Oh, that's such a good moment, too. I almost totally forgot about that, but rewatching it last night, I was like, 
you know, you could have taken this out and just made like a YouTube video or something, you know, with no context at all. And that would have been amazing. But that scene being in the movie where it was really, really worked for me. We barely even touched on any of the actors who play the the new historical figures. But Jeremiah Kraft as Louis Armstrong. Holy shit. Yeah. If he's not the guy that you cast in the Louis Armstrong movie. I mean, he he does such a good job at evoking the good things about Louis Armstrong that so many people remember without turning it into a straight up impersonation. It's it's just the smart writing, right? I mean, I felt like such the old man when Kid Cuddy showed up and I'm just like, who's Kid Cuddy? I felt like an old man, too, because I don't know why Kid Cuddy was in this movie. <laughs> I'm aware of him, and I try to keep up to date on on a lot of modern artists, but that's one who has escaped me. But luckily, I did not need any knowledge of his music for his his uh, appearance to work. I just felt so out of touch. I was just like, okay, had they put like Chance the Rapper or um, uh, who's the guy with all the fucked up tattoos on oh, his Post face? Malone? Or Post Malone, <laughs> or even like Sixty Nine, or whatever that guy's name is, like. I might have known who he was, but I was just like, I don't know who Kid Cudi is. Now that you mention it, Post Malone talking like metaphysics would have been even funnier. Yeah, well, he had the power of the Doritos. They opened up his mind. And, and the Bud Light. He's got that, too. <laughs> I would say, though, Mike, uh, you, you should look into Kid Cudi because he is a huge part of the hip hop industry in like ways that like the hip hop industry has never really faced itself, like dealing with depression and like mental illness. Because Kid Cudi is like a huge proponent of like taking those things seriously and he struggled with depression and suicide. And it's really weird because, again, like it feels woke, but without having to try. Yeah, like if, if Post Malone had been in this movie, it might have felt a little hollow. It might have felt a little 2020 or like trying to stay contemporary. And like as much as I agree, like why is he in this movie? Like as someone who is a fan of him, I'm OK with it. But I still wonder why he's in this movie because it is a specific choice. Kid Cuddy is not the hat you draw. Is not the name you draw out of the hat. No, like, but again, the, the fact that the joke was that he was not there for his music, but just because of his brilliant mind, you know, that worked for me because I recognized his name. And I didn't need a touchstone beyond that. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on this episode, Josh. What is happening in your world, sir? Since the world shut down last year, I've been out of work. I was working in a projection booth, so I've had nothing to do. Uh, I went back to school and. I've been doing well with that. Otherwise, I have been watching more movies in one year's time than I probably have in the last five. <laughs> I do log everything that I watch on my Letterboxd account, which is Bracky Wacky. That's B-R-A-K-Y-W-A-K-I, I believe. That's what I use on all the social media stuff. So I'm planning to do a little bit more just in terms of creation on the internet in the future. So if anybody finds me on social media... Eventually, I'll do something with my life. <laughs> I uh, I have friends in a... Well, I, I actually also admin a group called the Classic Gamers Guild, which I know this is not a game podcast, but we, in particular, are cool with the old school like point-and-click adventure games like the crappy Bill and Ted one. And um, I'm probably going to start streaming on our channel at one point with like old live-action FMV computer games and stuff like Ripper starring Christopher Walk and Phantasmagoria. So basically interactive movies. And whenever that gets together, that's going to be a lot of fun too. I just got to actually 
set everything up. <laughs> but other than that, it's it's just, you know, life as usual, waiting for the, the world to turn back on. Hey, Chris, how about you? Similarly to Josh, I have been locked inside of my house. Uh, however, as many of you know, this is a joint podcast. By the way, Mike, the fact that this is the first time we've done this after being friends for almost six years is kind of insane. But a, a welcome surprise for 2021. So if you want to hear more of the Culture Cast, uh, culturecast.com. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Christmas Claus. Where can people find you, Mike, when you're not, when we're not splitting a joint between our two podcasts? A Mike and Chris joint, as it were. Hey, man, there it is. Uh, you can find me over at the Barney Miller podcast, which is available at the Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, and I will have a link to that. And then also we do a podcast called Dreams for Sale, which is available at TwilightZone85.com, where every month we talk about old episodes of the Twilight Zone from the 80s. So more nostalgia for your member berries. And as always, make sure to check out the next episode. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to theculturecast.com or to theprojectionbooth.com, where you can find out more about this uh, week's episode, about this special episode. And you can also make a donation to either Chris's Patreon or my Patreon or both of our Patreons. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth and the Culture Cast take over the world. Station! Station! Later, evil usses!
God gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll to me. Save rock and roll for everyone. Save rock and roll.
final and most triumphant report of this afternoon. A run through history with some of the greatest dudes who have ever lived. In their 1998 world tour, Preston and Logan Productions proudly introduce to you the Wild Stallions, supported by the History
not so sure. Okay, here's a guy whose mother loved her brandy so much, she named her son after it. Living proof that size isn't everything. Monsieur Napoleon Bonaparte! Into the battle where the cannons roar. Thank <laughs> you. 
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.